Greetings, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. And listeners, I'm going to tell you right now, this may just be... Uh, one of, if not the biggest extra milestones yet for a multitude of reasons. Objectively speaking, it has to be because we've got a hell of a lineup of films today. And to go with that, I thought it was only fitting to assemble an enormous lineup of some of my very closest friends and uh, and uh, do a bit of a reunion of sorts. Without any further ado, we are... Uh, we're we're going to get right into this, and I am going to introduce my friends in alphabetical order. First up, we have the former co-host of Anyway, That's All I Got, uh, fan of Michael Bay's Armageddon, and staunch denier of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It is <laughs> Anthony Battaglia. Welcome back, Anthony. Oh, it's it's me. Top of the alphabet. Sucks for you guys. <laughs> oh, you're goddamn right. Well, you know what? <laughs> Not far behind alphabetically is one of my other very closest friends. We have 007 aficionado and Stan of Con Air with Nicolas Cage. It is a man whose name John Negroni repeatedly refuses to pronounce correctly. So I'm going to make sure to get it on the record right now. Guy Simons Jr. Welcome back, Guy. How does he pronounce my name? Simmons? He says Simmons. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. At that first. For a name. second, I thought you were talking like he 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 doesn't know how to pronounce guy. I'm like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, I was very confused. Well, for I a mean, second. but for the French, it yeah. would be Guy. 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 No, I've yeah. on on numerous occasions I've corrected John and said, John, it's Simons. He's like, <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> The funny John listens back to these, so it's gonna. So this is gonna be a, a fun conversation to have it tomorrow morning. John and Simon, but fi- <laughs> but finally joining us on what is sure to be a, a hectic and epic extra milestone week, returning for the first time in far too long. I say another one of my very closest friends. It is a celebrity face consultant and. <laughs> Passive fan of the Star Wars holiday special, something that none of us will ever remotely understand. It is Jason Reed. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, I I couldn't think of another, uh, you know, movie to mention before my name besides (laughs) the the holiday special. Movie? Can we call it a movie? It, it's you and Will Ashton. Uh, I think you're one of the oh, only two people that I know would make who, sense. No, I uh, who find some sort of redemptive yeah. enjoyment in yeah. that abomination. I, I enjoy Will's, Will's tastes. <laughs> there you I go. I agree. Yes. Well, the police Will, are on their way to both of your houses. There you go. There you go. <laughs> FBI will be kicking down your door. Multiple jurisdictions, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, lots of busy work, but now is not the time for that. Now is the time to talk about, uh, I dare say, three of the biggest, most significant, and arguably best epics 
of the 21st century, uh, 21st, 20th century, always get the centuries screwed up. So expect a lot of errors in this podcast because, uh, because uh, we're having a good time. We have a, a, a trio that spans 25 years, uh, and only two directors. So. It's going to be interesting uh, to discuss them. And I don't always do this, but uh, I am going to announce all of them right up front. Give everyone a little little taste of the action. Little, uh, let everyone wet their beak a little bit to hear what's in store over the course of this. We are going to start with a conversation on Stanley Kubrick's 1975 passion project, Barry Lyndon, something I'm sure uh, that uh, uh, at least most of us are very excited to talk about, Mo- probably all of us. After that, we're going to uh, take a trip back in time just a little bit. We're going to talk about another Stanley Kubrick film, Spartacus, released in 1960, which holds a very interesting place in film history and uh, Kubrick's filmography. So that's going to be fascinating. And then finally, we have a film from... My favorite director of all time, uh, one of his most revered works. It is Akira Kurosawa's Ron, released in 1985. Uh, and uh, yeah, what say we just get going, gents? Diving in? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, sir. We're going to start with, as I said before, just now, it is none other than Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, a film by Stanley Kubrick, starring Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson, has won the Best Picture and Best Director Award presented by the National Board of Review. Richard Schickel, in a Time Magazine seven-page cover story, called the film ravishing, overwhelming, an uncompromised artistic vision, and said, Director Stanley Kubrick asserts a claim to greatness that time alone can and probably will confirm. CBS TV critic Pat Collins called it a masterpiece, monumental, a perfect film of epic size. Playboy magazine's Bruce Williamson, a film classic. Rex Reed of the New York Daily News wrote, as an 18th century rake's progress, Barry Lyndon catalogues the rise and fall of a likable scoundrel, liar, cheat, and social climber, transporting the viewer into a world of long ago and creating the kind of magic few movies accomplish and few directors attempt in a lifetime. It is a magnificent entertainment, sumptuous, lush, gorgeous, and haunting, a classic of inestimable value. Liz Smith of Cosmopolitan called it a perfect movie. Beautiful, breathtaking, brilliant. Like a gorgeous, fulfilling dream of life. A dream you never want to end. It is not comparable to any other film I can recall. I ask you to turn yourself over to the experience. So now this is, uh, we're, we're all approaching this from uh, somewhat different angles. So what I want to do is, as I often do on Extra Milestone, I want to get a little bit of a line on everyone's uh, familiarity with uh, the movies that we're going to be discussing. So Anthony Battaglia, I want to ask you first, 
what is your uh, uh, familiarity, not only with Barry Lyndon itself, but kind of with uh, Kubrick as a director at large? Because he's a director that I don't think we've ever discussed uh, via podcast at at, uh, any great length. Right. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of Kubrick's movies. Um, I, I've always been drawn to his, um, his tone and his, his mood that he creates. And I was not very familiar with Barry Lyndon before I watched it. Uh, this was the first time I watched it for this, for this show. So, um, all I knew about it was that it was set in the past and it's about, uh, uh, a weird guy. Uh, weird guy. As I watched, it turned out to be an understatement. Uh, <laughs> but I, it it turned out to be my uh, my favorite movie of the three of what we're discussing today. So I mm. I enjoyed it same. a lot. Same. Very same. nice. Very nice. I have a I have a strange feeling that we're all on the same page when it comes to uh, the ranking of these three. So uh, uh, Jason, I want to ask you next. Uh, I'll just ask the same question. What's your uh, Kubrick and uh, Barry Lyndon familiarity. So I guess I don't really know a whole lot about Kubrick. I mean, uh, you know, we, we know stories of like him working on shining, just being a difficult, you know, controlling director to work with, but um, that's how he creates his, you know, tight knit, uh, well done movies. Um, and Barry Lyndon, was a movie that I had started three, four times, but always fallen asleep <laughs> during. Uh, not that it was boring. It just caught me on uh, certain days when I was tired. Um, and the first there are some time, movies that are just kind of sleep-inducing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of them directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, so the first time I saw it was uh, in theaters this year with, with you and, hmm. and guy. Um, and yeah, no immediate, I, I, I rarely give movies, uh, five out of five stars, uh, upon first viewing, but this is, this is one of those exceptions. So that's, that's how I feel about it so far. Very nice. Five out of five. That's yeah. I want to, I, I think we kind of already, uh, uh, answered the question for the remaining two, but guy, what's, uh, What's uh, your familiarity with Stanley Kubrick and also how you came to uh, hear about or find out about this movie particularly? Um, I found out about this movie like four or five years ago. Um, I've always been a fan of Stanley Kubrick and, you know, all of his movies. Uh, Cause I always loved, you know, the shining full metal jacket, you know, all the, all the classics. Um, and then, but this was one that I always kind of avoided because I, you know, it was kind of of the school of thought that, you know, it's a three hour epic, you know, I assumed it wouldn't be as, you know, exciting as some of his other stuff. Yeah, um, three hour 18th century. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> three hour 18th yeah. century. So I, I kind of avoided it for a long time until, as Jason said, you know, you invited us to go see it in theaters for the first time. And I immediately fell in love with that. I immediately thought it was amazing. I think it's one of his best movies personally. I tricked you both i got you and i'm very <laughs> yeah. proud of that yeah you reeled this in yeah i had kind of a similar thing where um i this was one that i heard about kind of in passing uh but i never really heard that many people go into detail about it and 
it's it, it's occurred to me recently that this movie in particular kind of stands out among Kubrick's filmography uh, as being a little different than most. Part of the reason is because it was more of a passion project. Um, what happened was that I think it was, it was after 2001, A Space Odyssey came out. Kubrick really wanted to make a movie about Napoleon, uh, which there had already been a few of them, uh, but he wanted to do his own. And I still, just one of the great unmade movies that I would have loved more than anything to see. And uh, it ended up falling through uh, for for a, a bit of a time there. And so he ended up making A Clockwork Orange instead. And then it was after that, where, you know, that movie was uh, more of a hit than I think a lot of people anticipated and got some Academy Award nominations and stuff. So they kind of wrote the blank check to Kubrick saying, you can do whatever you want. He's like, great, I want to do my uh, historical epic with with a very unusual sense of humor and that's exactly what happened and it wasn't napoleon specifically but it was around that same time period kubrick used a lot of the research that uh, he had done to kind of inform how it worked uh and uh and yeah and it was just one that i heard about i kept hearing the title of i kept seeing everyone who'd seen it loved it and uh i just never i kept thinking like all right today's the day i'm gonna watch it i remember so specifically thinking there were many occasions in which i would wake up and be like i gotta do it i gotta finally cross it off the old list and it took it took years until one day i realized you know there are only two others that i haven't seen uh two kubrick movies i should say that i haven't seen uh one of them is eyes wide shut and the other is barry linden and i wanted to watch eyes wide shut last because it was kubrick's last movie so i thought it would be fitting i finally gave it a watch about a year ago now actually and uh and yeah it was like uh jason and guy it was kind of love at first sight it was unlike anything i had ever seen and i've now seen it three times once in theaters which was uh, legendary um i i I own two copies of it on blu-ray even before (laughs) i had even seen it Um, (laughs) two two versions of it yeah That is a very Jason thing to do. Of like course, just yeah. in case, just in case someone breaks into Jason's house late at night and <laughs> feels a need to like steal a copy of Barry Lyndon. I got yeah. another one. So it's whatever. Yeah, I've got two. I mean, I have three copies of Die Hard. Really? <laughs> yeah, what? two of them Blu-ray and one's regular, so I can take it anywhere. <laughs> Are the two Blu-rays like the same edition? Uh, no, one is a special edition that came in a yeah. special uh, miniature of the Nakatomi Plaza. Oh. Ooh. That's cool. Because that's, that's how nerdy I am about Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jason, are these two Barry Lyndon copies you have? Are they the same? Are they no. both the Criterion um, version? One of them is the Criterion, and then another one is okay. just a, a you know a generic Blu-ray. See, I'll, now I'll, now I'll cut you both a little slack because it would be one thing if they were both like just the <laughs> same version that you happen yeah. to have two of for yeah, whatever yeah. reason. <laughs> I should, I am one to talk because I own two of the exact same copy of Yojimbo. So I'm right there. <laughs> I'm guilty along with everyone else. Um, I own two criterions of the Dark Knight. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That's, that's understandable. Yeah. I mean, sometimes one just isn't enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you got two eyes, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> just put them on one side by side. 
<laughs> one on yeah. each TV. Yeah. Uh, Put it in my double the fun for you know get all the senses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so a, a guy and Jason and I have kind of already uh, waxed rhapsodic about it a little bit. Anthony, you mentioned that this was your favorite of the three. I want to hear a little bit more about uh, just kind of your general reactions to it uh, uh, and kind of the way that you maybe discovered it as you were watching it uh, and just kind of your general takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I I was wary at first because like – you know, like you guys have mentioned, it's a three-hour historical drama. Seemed mm-hmm. really boring to me. <laughs> and I, yes. like, if it wasn't a Kubrick movie, I may never have watched it. Right. Um, yep. But I, you know, I just knew that there's going to be something of value here, whether I enjoy it or not. Um, and I ended up enjoying it a lot. But I, I, I wasn't, it did take me a while to get hooked. Um, mm. Because just, I don't know, what something, it, I... I approached this movie because I didn't want to, I had that negative, uh, this seems boring, uh, mindset before I started. So to get me, to get myself out of that mindset, I said, I'm going to look at this as cinema, as an art form rather than cinema as entertainment. Hmm. So that's what I watched it as. And right, right out of the gate, I was like, okay, so this obviously has some of the best cinematography I've ever seen in my life. Oh yeah. Yeah. From that first uh, shot. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, I was, I was, I was like, well, now I, can, I was not interested in, in the story. It's two parts. Part one bored me story wise. Hmm. Hmm. I did part, not care. Part one bored you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, okay. I was, I was not interested. I was bored okay. and I, I was like, okay, at least the cinematography is good. Um, and because I mean, I, I do not like, uh, Barry, I think he's he's a jerk, and I was not rooting for him. <laughs> I was annoyed by him throughout the entire movie. I but yeah, second, completely understand. Yeah. Part two, yeah. for whatever reason, just major shift for me. Like, wow, I could not look away from both the cinematography and the plot. Like, hmm. you have the That's mixture of um, yeah, I, I was thrown off by it too, and I, <laughs> I, with the mixture of the just the the impeccable filmmaking. The framing, the composition of each yeah. shot, the, the oh, yeah. editing, the everything, every single aspect, you could just tell masterfully executed. Yes. And the the plot of the the I guess the first half kind of felt like uh, almost soap opera y to me. And the second mm-hmm. half, while still soap opera ish, there was a bit the, the drama felt more intense for whatever reason, and that's I think I gravitated to that more. And I I could not look away. The, for the entire part two, I I thought it was glorious. It was. It's. Un, I've never seen a movie like this. I'll never see a movie like this again. Um, yeah. It was. I I thought it was. I thought it was a glorious movie. That's that's, that's so very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So did you guys not? Did you guys? It sounds like you guys were flipped. Like you guys liked the first half oh, more than the second half. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not like I didn't like the second half at all. But I think. The, the first half is just incredibly entertaining the entire way through. You know, the second half, I think, can have some slow moments, but, you know, even those moments are, you know, still great because of the cinematography, the music that is throughout the whole thing. But the, that, that first half, where it's just going from war scenes to duels to the, the really wholesome robbery and uh, 
that, that was the most polite robbery. <laughs> Good old Captain Feeney. Yeah, so nice. Um, to fisticuff fight scenes, uh, you know, jumping from location to location with no real ro- repeating locations. I thought, you know, the, the first half flies by, honestly, mm. um, for, for me at least. Uh, I just I just find the, the first half so entertaining. And I still love the second half, which is for different reasons. For that That's like, so slower, more melancholic like uh, feel to it. Do you not think the the entire thing has kind of that melancholic uh, tone it, to it? It does, but I think the first half. I don't know. It, it, you know, there's comedy in the first half. You know, there's not a whole lot. I think there's comedy but, um, all throughout. I think it's a very unique kind of comedy. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the final duel was hilarious. Oh, mm-hmm. that was great. Yeah, yeah. No, his son is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> so many I think funny characters in this. There's a I I laughed like a maniac all throughout this. Like this was it's it's really became clear to me with this third viewing just how just funny this all is like knowing being a little more familiar with the events throughout that's so fascinating what you two are uh, mentioning about kind of the way the two halves interact with each other i want to talk a little bit more uh about that in a second but guy did you have a thought on that did you have one specific uh act of the movie that you kind of favored over the other or anything like that yeah, I, I agree more with Anthony, honestly. I I enjoy both halves, but I, I did enjoy the second half more because I think I also kind of gravitated more towards the just dramatic and like melancholy feel, feel of the second half. Um, hmm. it, to, to me, it felt like there was less comedy. There's still, I think, I still think there is comedy in the second half, but it felt like there was less of it and it felt uh, much more dreary to me. And I kind of gravitated more towards that. Yeah, I guess the dreariness really... Um, I don't know is accentuated by that like I don't even know what to call like the the cinematography where it looks like like greasy almost mm. you know what I mean but not in like a gross way you know right. um, where I don't know just light has such a specific look in this movie that really is not present in any other movie Something about the second half just feels like a little more claustrophobic to me, and I, hmm. I don't know, I like that. I think yeah. there's definitely a reason for that. I think this movie is very clearly divided into two acts, which is strange considering how long it is. So that means each act is like 90 minutes long, which is three times as long as the normal act that we're used to uh, in most traditional stories. Um I do feel the need to real quick uh, just sort of give a little background on what these two acts are that we're talking about, uh, in case anyone doesn't know. Um, it is uh, it, it kind of like a Tarantino movie where there are two different chapters that are uh, uh, introduced via a title card. The first one, and I should I really should have written down exactly what it is. A matter, actually, I have it right here. I can look it up. Part one. By what means Redmond Barry acquired the style and title of Barry Lyndon? Uh, I think that's exactly it. That, well, of course, because I'm reading it off the Wikipedia page. Oh, oh, I'm I just, thought you were just, just I thought that was off the that. head. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, yes, it was. I just remembered it off the top of my head. Off the dome. 
off the right off the old uh, uh, noggin there. <laughs> and then the part two, and this this is completely off the top of my head. I'm not reading off the Wikipedia page containing an account of the misfortunes and disasters which befell Barry Lyndon. Totally not reading that. So yeah, no, that's close. It that's true. close. Yeah, I think yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. uh, I'm such a silly goose, and uh, <laughs> it's very much a uh, it's very much a two act thing. Where in the first act is the rise, and then the second one is the fall. Like that's very clearly where the uh, divide is made. They are separated by an intermission. Uh, fun fact, Jason guy, I don't know if you remember this. We almost missed the return back from the intermission when we saw it yes. uh, at the theater where I work because we were so we were admiring the inner workings of the auto, the theater auditorium itself and then we heard the Barry Lyndon music start back up and had yeah. to like sprint back to our scurried seats scurried back to our seats yeah <laughs> yeah so I always think of that whenever whenever there's an intermission in a movie because yeah. it it's this weird thing where like on home video releases they'll shorten the intermission. I wish they would keep it completely intact, like the exact same amount of length that it is. Um, yeah, I my, forgot. I got up to get a snack during it, and then it just started up real quick. And, and that's how it works. Scurry back to my seat. You got to be on your toes with these intermission things. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. my favorite intermission of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's like <laughs> three seconds long as they're walking across a bridge. One of my favorites. Uh, but yeah, that is basically the deal. The first one is uh, Redmond Barry, played by uh, Ryan O'Neill, who was a rising star at the time, had had some uh, uh, success and would still go on to have a lot of other success in a lot of auteur projects of the 70s specifically, which is what a lot of the 70s was. And this is certainly certainly among the very best i would say um is a is a an, an irish uh a boy at the beginning of the movie who is uh, <laughs> who's just sort of stricken by love initially and a lot of things happen he ends up sort of working his way into the uh, aristocracy and fighting various wars various battles never settling in one place for too long and then uh right at the end of the first half marries a rich woman uh and is is now royalty and the second act of the movie after the intermission is sort of the uh, the fall from grace if indeed there ever was any grace and uh lots of rivalries ensue in both halves and uh yeah it's a really it's a it's a hell of a journey hell of a journey that this character and the uh audience takes um so guy uh uh i, I already asked you sort of how you viewed the two separate halves um here's a question i want to ask specifically because i already kind of brought it up a second ago but both the first and uh second time that you saw this movie when it comes to the sense of humor what did you uh what did you make of that Did, uh, did it uh strike you as being something different than a lot of similar movies as its kind or what was kind of your thoughts on it yeah it's uh it's kind of odd it's very like offbeat and like mm-hmm. very very dry and very british which is which is something that i like i usually tend to gravitate towards you know that british dry humor um mm-hmm. which is why it's kind of odd that i that i liked the second half more but yeah first half i i enjoy the 
the the dryness of it all nice yeah i think there are most of the actors are giving relatively straightforward performances i would say but there are a few that just go like above and beyond specifically there and i gotta look up this actor here the guy who plays the first or at least the prior husband of the woman that yes uh, redmond barry would end yes sir charles (laughs) sir charles (laughs) yeah uh, has this just sort of flip out scene uh the actor's name is a frank middlemass and that's right at the end of part one uh before barry kind of infiltrates uh into uh, lady linden's love who's played by uh, marissa berenson and uh it's a it's a hysterical scene Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of uh really hysterical characters like sir charles and uh the other i definitely don't know this this character's name but that Mm -hmm. other guy who is uh in one of the gambling scenes i think he's only really in in the one gambling scene but he's the 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 guy who has has uh, a woman on each side of him and yes just yeah just very uh, faces in this just make me laugh (laughs) very well composed mm-hmm. fellow yeah. the, the, this is just kind of a normal day for him you can yeah tell. or the reverend turning the or i don't even know turning the page yeah the, <laughs> turning the page <laughs> kills, yeah. kills me every time <laughs> never looks down at the pages yeah. but still turns him you oh, remember yeah. his name right uh no actually runt? i don't runt reverend runt, runt. yeah <laughs> okay that sounds That's, like a Monty Python character. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It Truly. does. It does. Uh, Anthony, what did you make of the uh, uh, sense of humor in this movie? Do you think it kind of uh, came alive in the second half or was it always there? Was it never there? What was your uh, thoughts on that? I think it was always there uh, to me. Like I, I laughed a lot during the movie. Um, I, it was, I think the, like Guy was saying, the very the dry, it, it is very British. Um, it, it, that really shined through to me. And I thought the, the stepson, his, his stepson was the funniest oh, character. Oh, I Lord Bullington. That little, <laughs> that little brat. And then he grew up to be a bigger brat, but slightly more mature. And it was, oh, everyone's that, a brat in this. It's that hilarious. dynamic. Yeah. Is nope. hysterical to me, and I thought he was re- really funny to watch the whipping scenes. I don't know how <laughs> oh funny those were supposed to be. But they were oh, they're funny. they're hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just choking I, on his tears. It is that is <laughs> yeah. so good. He's fan, he is when fantastic. He's, yeah. Especially when he's grown up and he's just oh like God. having more of a reaction than the younger oh version did. He's that's like, yeah, I'll kill you if you do it again. And it's just it's very <laughs> now, funny. Here's here's the way I read that, and I love that you brought this up. The way that I read that was that as when he was disciplined, co- corporal punishment. Uh, is is the deal here is the racket we're we're delving into here uh i got the sense that as a kid the punishment was less severe like barry wasn't being as uh harsh with it because he was a kid but now he's an adult and feels like oh i don't you know i don't have to hold back i don't have to pull my punches or whatever there is but it's even funnier to think that it's the exact same level of force and it's just become that much more dramatic <laughs> having having sort of uh, that's how I want to think of it 
I think I think that's a good way to look at it. Having sort of been away for some time, uh, the scene that I always find really hysterical is when uh, Lord Bullingdon, uh, Barry's stepson and Barry's biological son, little Brian Linden, who's a little boy. They're ch- little they're, turd is what he is. Ex- yeah. Oh, even more they, so than Lord Bullingdon, I would yeah. say. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, although, it, you know, only so much can be blamed. It is just a kid, but even still. And they just have to fight about something. And uh, and little Brian is just constantly badgering Lord Bullingdon, like, what does this word mean? What does and quadrangle says, mean? I, I, strenuous. I lost what is my... strenuous? <laughs> exactly. I lost my pencil. You <laughs> took it. And then they get into, like, a full-on wrestling match it's it's, (laughs) a tiff it's hysterical here's the thing that i was i i I think i felt kind of similar feelings all three times as kind of uh eccentric as kind of uh what's what's the word i'm looking for just i I think bratty is kind of the perfect word as lord bullingdon is I think I, I think uh, the movie is kind of punishing him a little bit, and we're meant to sort of uh, feel for him a little bit because what, of course, what happens is that his father has died suddenly, and then in comes this other man who really doesn't care much for him and is marrying his mother, and we find out very quickly that Barry cares very little about his new wife, uh, is, you know, openly cheats on her and everything, uh, uh, treats her with very, very little open. reverence only the occasional yeah literally as right after she asks him not to uh i remember that getting a big laugh in the theater Mm -hmm. and uh yeah just kind of openly disrespecting her so i gotta think if i'm lord bullingdon in this situation of course i'm gonna feel a little bit of resentment and because they're both kind of childish at heart to different extents but they're both uh just kind of immature and undeveloped I find th- I find myself sympathizing a little bit more with Lord Bullingdon to the point where, and this is maybe a little bit of a spoiler to how the movie concludes, but and the end when after this prolonged duel with a pair of pistols, uh, Lord Bullingdon ends up winning functionally. I find myself getting very uh, uh, satisfied by that, and then of course the epilogue that follows. Um, does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I loved the, the ending and their duel. I thought it was hysterical and tragic and sad. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm right there with you with um, sympathizing with Lord Bullington because I also like his mother. She never did anything wrong. She was a good character. Right. And she just totally gets screwed over while, you know, while Barry whores his way through Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, that's he's as he's done the whole movie. And it's just very. It is, it is, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's very tragic. And I think as, you know, bratty as Lord Bullington is, I was rooting for him at the end. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think the movie, I, what you were talking about earlier about how Barry is kind of a bastard. I think, yes, absolutely. I think that's actually kind of the outspoken ethos is that here's this character who from the very beginning has you know swears no allegiances or anything and not that there's anything wrong with that in fact that's uh rather admirable a lot of the time but is clearly just going about the world driven by lust and envy and kind of nothing in between it's mostly just those two and and maybe some greed so that's like 
almost half of the deadly sins right there are this character's uh, main driving forces. And then once he finally gets there, gets to a level of success by marrying into a family, not even accomplishing anything like like he's made it this far. Yes, but really hasn't done anything to earn it and then just kind of lives off of it and then uh, loses all of it very quickly, realizes that there's nothing there and that it's just kind of an empty uh, way of life to seek out success and then do nothing once you find it. Uh, it speaks to the tragedy of the movie. And I think it's, uh, it, it makes for a really interesting uh, protagonist, you know? Yeah. How how old is uh, Barry supposed to be in the beginning? Oh goodness! We know. Uh, I don't think it specifically says, but um, well, he's yeah. younger than his cousin, isn't he? Right. Yeah. And she's of marrying age, so mm. is he supposed to be like teenager somewhere, somewhere yeah. older Some, teenager? Was somewhere around there. Then. I I have that's true. Marrying age 12? could be fifteen. Who knows? Exactly, like fourteen <laughs> years old. Who knows? Yeah. My my prediction is somewhere like early twenties. Um, I think that's the way that the characters kind of played. Okay, point. yeah, because he he acts like a child in the beginning. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. and that is that's my favorite stuff. Is, is he <laughs> he's just the most pathetic person, and he yeah. just gets put in these situations where everything just works out so well for him. And I just find that so funny. Um, mm-hmm. yeah he, then, he like gains his fortune not through wit or charm or anything completely just is it's like oh look how cute he's stupid yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah just just when you think like you know um his stupid choices are coming back to get him like they they turn around and work out you know up, up until the end of course um, yeah but i just i don't know i find i i know a lot of people will find that annoying but that's mm. one of my favorite parts of this <laughs> <laughs> I think annoying is an interesting way to describe it. And I think it's definitely a fair uh, reaction to have while also, of course, enjoying kind of the, uh, the dry sense of humor uh, throughout. And yeah, one of the, one of the first things that Barry does, the thing that kind of sets him about his journey is that he challenges to a duel, the man who has, who is set to marry his oh, cousin of all fantastic people. Captain Quinn. Captain oh, Quinn. He's fantastic. His yeah, dance. He's hilarious. His dance. Oh, he's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, his his just shaking anger and fear <laughs> during that first duel. Oh my god. He's impossibly British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love the oh, way that great. they it, it's interesting because I remember the first time I was watching this as the duel was like just getting started. I was thinking to myself, this is this is ridiculous. How did anyone let it get this far? And then uh, Captain Quinn says that exact same thing. Like, listen, we can can we just put this behind us? This is ridiculous. And Barry's like, no, and shoots him. <laughs> he's such a I demand bastard. satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. Just so entitled. Oh, I love him. I think Ryan O'Neill is so good in this. He's just he's the great. softest man ever. <laughs> <laughs> that you just, can totally believe would be this insidious dickhead. You know? Yeah, he's right. got like those like really soft puppy dog eyes, mm. and then like like a, a I don't know even know how to describe his voice, but it's like pleasantly like approachable I approachable <laughs> but also like you want to hit him like i don't know <laughs> it's, you want I, to, I think, it's hard I to think describe. that's accurate like like yeah. i think puppy dog is a good way to go about it because like 
he's just pissing on the rug the whole movie. You wanted to shove his nose in it. Like, <laughs> yeah. look what you're doing. Like, do you not see this? Why are you doing this? Oh, it's so, it's so crazy because, yeah, he's just this frustrating, but in, in my opinion, uh, inter- entertaining guy. Like, mm-hmm. I, I wanted him to succeed for, for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, he's, he's got that fight scene where he challenges a much, much bigger man. And yeah. it just the bone saw fight beats the <laughs> hell out of him. Beats yeah. the hell out of him. Really, it's oh, it's it's great. <laughs> when I say approachable, what I meant is that you want to approach him so that you can hit him. So I think yes. it all works. Exactly, uh, yeah. it all works out. You want to get end. close enough so your fist can hit his face. <laughs> what I love exactly. is that. After that initial fight, when he uh, kills Captain Quinn, or so he thinks, there's kind of a, a bizarre reversal later in the movie, doesn't even stick around, just takes off. Like, yeah. well, I've killed this man for no good reason. I'm going to take some money and be on my way. And what I off love. Off to Germany. Exactly. <laughs> just to, you know, see, uh, see what awaits me. I've always been a wanderer. Um, and uh, there is, I just got to mention real quick, we've already gushed about the cinematography, but there is this one shot right after Barry leaves and right before uh, he arrives at this village where he meets Captain Feeney, who would later rob him blind. There is this <laughs> shot of just Barry riding on a horse like around this bend that oh, is yeah. possibly my favorite shot in cinema history, just aesthetically. Like it is unlike anything I've ever seen. But what I love yeah. is that you takes that money and immediately loses it all like there it's this constant cycle throughout the movie of uh just ups and downs and ups and downs and it ends with just the ultimate down and it leaves the movie on this tone of how history is this perpetual cycle of just like all right just keep it moving like you know nothing uh lasts forever we literally don't matter. I think that's the thing I love uh, the most about this movie. Does that make sense what I'm describing there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. It's, it's uh, especially with the end title card, which is, it, and it took me three times to really appreciate kind of the, the way it really wraps the entire movie up, but the way it says, like, and all this stuff happened. We saw like basically an entire life story, or at least the parts that mattered. And after this happens, things just kind of worked out from there. Like it's so flippant <laughs> about the way that it, it that it describes uh, it, that it just kind of sums up all the events. Not necessarily specifically of the plot, but just kind of the way that history passes us by. And although we are, um, how should I say this? In our own mind, we are like the most important person in the world, like the only person that matters in some cases. We are the hero of our own story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even though that is the case for everyone, history does not give a damn and is it weird that i find this weird piece in that no i i do too honestly (laughs) i do that movie the movie like does make me feel like kind of okay about it i can't tell you why (laughs) like just that you know things will happen and we have so little control over them it's kind of pointless to even care you know right exactly I don't know why Jason, I gravitate towards that. Jason, did that has has that uh, little subtext ever occurred to you? Yes, 
No, I, I, I yeah, I think it has. Um, mm. Yeah, just the kind of can canceling that you talk about with you know ups and downs. Just really, yeah. And that we're getting, we're seeing it all unfold in such a deliciously humorous way. You know, it's it's yeah. almost like this huge prank that Kubrick is pulling on the audience and that i i can tell that kubrick thinks that only he's in on the joke like i'll i'll bet you anything that if uh while stanley kubrick was alive if anyone were to watch this movie in a theater with him not unlike orson wells and john houston watching the movie the trial that he was probably dying laughing through all throughout all of it while like everyone was probably shushing him trying to take it seriously like no this is a serious drama i'll bet you kubrick was like well yes but also no this is all really pointless in the end and it's just all a bunch of nonsense that we occupy our lives with and yet i'm dramatizing it like it's the most epic story that's ever been told and that's kind of what i love the most about this is the way that it sort of interacts with itself to become something really kind of profound you know what i'm saying yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah, i have a question uh do you Hmm. think like I, I know Anthony said this, but um, were you like intimidated by the uh, well, first of all, like the runtime, but also uh, just being set in the 18th century? Because I know that a lot of uh, movies taking place in that time uh, can be a little hard to like, you know, decipher what the characters are actually saying, just because mm-hmm. there's such a barrier between how we talk now and how they used to talk yeah just kind of the language and the syntax and everything yeah were you ever like um in- intimidated by just watching a-, a movie that took place back then uh not that specifically i don't think uh i think it was probably more so the runtime than anything um yeah but weirdly enough i kind of i've i've learned to become like very welcoming of longer movies um you know, in doing uh, a lot of a lot of longer stuff on this show and others that I've done and everything, so I don't think it was that necessarily. Uh, plus, it's you know, even before seeing it, I was like, okay, well, I know I'm going to at least find something enjoyable in this. Like, I, 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 a lot of Kubrick's movies, not a lot, but there are some Kubrick movies that don't work. I don't think any of them are boring. So I would, I was not yeah. thinking that this would be that. Um, and yeah, and uh, and runtime is a thing to take into account. That come to think of it, that's probably the reason why I kind of prolonged it for so long. Sure, uh, yeah. Waited so long to get to yeah, it for sure. Um, what about you, guy? Did you was there anything specifically that kind of uh, kept you away for as long as it did? Definitely, definitely the runtime. <clears throat> the the time period didn't never really um, scared me off. I kind of enjoy the the time period. The sort of highfalutin language of that you know that <laughs> it's era. so unbelievably stuffy you exactly know? <laughs> there's something about that that i always kind of enjoyed it was mainly just the runtime nice yeah well yeah. so oh sorry go on no i was just gonna say something stupid <laughs> no, no please please say it I, I would love to hear it <laughs> i was just gonna say that if you showed anyone like an individual frame of this movie there are a lot of people who would take one look at it and be like mm, no i'm not interested mm-hmm. uh and then come to find out that there's actually a lot of a lot of wit and zazz to this that is not in a lot of uh period pieces 
of this ilk. So uh, definitely, I would I would I would recommend this before other uh, similar movies that are set in a similar time period, mostly for those reasons, for the tonal yeah, that's, approach and everything. That's why I brought this up is because um, I can't think of an example right now, but I, other movies that I've seen from this time period, um, it can be pretty difficult to decipher what it is they're saying um, mm-hmm. or what, you know, they're, they're trying to say. Um, and it can get a little boring in other movies. Uh, just, I, I don't know, just incredibly wordy and, and difficult. Yeah. I, um, I think but, um, the, the only example I can think of, I remember um, one of my first thoughts during this movie was that the, you guys remember the movie, the favorite came out. Was it last year? Yes. Yes. That's, I remember thinking example. the favorite wishes it was this movie. <laughs> that's how I yes. was. That's how I interpreted it. Yes. As, Cause I, I seen this, the favorite first and I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I liked a lot about it, but I did not like it that much. Um, and while I was watching Barry Lyndon, I was like, oh, so this is what the favorite was trying to be. And it <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it keeps, you know, the time period lingo, you know, all that. But it, you can still understand every single thing every every person saying, you know, it's it's every line is entertaining. You're not really lost with anything. Yeah, you don't have to decode any of it. Yeah, the only part that I had trouble with is the uh, insult that he gives that that one guy, uh, where it's like, "Is that a towel of your wife's washing or whatever?" (laughs) I'm I'm still not sure about that line. Wicked burn. Uh, The the guy's like, but you can. There's this other mischievous dude feeding him insults. Yeah, like (laughs) that's so funny. That's what's going on. I want to know who's this guy who's just. Stirring up shit. Like, does he oh, do he this just, all the time? He wants to say something. You know it. Yeah. yeah. But says, yeah. like, I'm going to wait for, like, a cipher to come in so that I can, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, have them test out the lines that I've always wanted to say. Yeah. Uh, for the drama. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It does work out nicely that way. Uh, yeah, that's interesting that you bring up uh, the favorite, Anthony. I remember when the favorite came out. Actually, a lot of uh, a lot of comparisons to Barry Lyndon were made, and this is before I'd seen Barry Lyndon. So mm. I was like, "Oh wow, okay." So uh, we're in for something a little more a little more unconventional uh, than just kind of the average. Like, here's some stuff that happened and historical, you know. St- thingies and everything like that because you know that's how these movies are pitched historical thingies yeah <laughs> and uh so that's and, uh, kubrick's words exactly it did yeah. it did le- <laughs> in it the did script lead- precisely yeah. <laughs> uh stan stan come here what's this yeah. historical thingies <laughs> is this nonsense <laughs> we're gonna need a new title <laughs> you there think you they'd go. question him no <laughs> no of they course not. Yeah, th- like I money. said, this was a blank check movie. It could have very well been titled uh, "Lots of Things," like Lord <laughs> Bullington's Redemption. That could have been. One of them. <laughs> I, I think I think they chose a great title. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, th- those comparisons did lead me to believe that it would be a little bit more uh, character focused, a little more irreverent, so to speak, uh, and and maybe even a little more kind of mocking of the time period. And I think that's something that, uh, like I said before, with the sense of humor, you will pick up on very quickly. Uh, if you're seeing this movie for the first time is that these are like, yes, these are, uh, you know, stuff shirt, powdered wigs, 
uh, kind of things going on, but they're also not presuming any huge amount of portent. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not thinking to themselves like this is history right here. They're, they know it's kind of dumb. And, uh, yeah, this movie movie makes a lot of, a lot of fun with that. Yeah. It played really great with a crowd surprisingly. Yeah. Um, really when did. we saw it in theaters, yeah, people were laughing throughout. Oh yeah. And we were three of them. So that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good oh, I, I, I need that in my life again. I really do. <laughs> Don't I, we all? We, yeah. We cannot lose that. Um, but yeah, get, getting beyond the sadness, uh, <laughs> Anthony, I want to ask, um, you, you mentioned that you'd seen a handful of, uh, Kubrick movies where off the top of your head, where do you think this would rank among them? Like, I imagine it's Ooh. probably higher on the list. I think so. Um, I think 2001, probably my top mm-hmm. full metal jacket, probably number two. Hmm. I think it's. I need to rewatch The Shining, but I'm pretty sure The Shining is going to be number three. But this might be right behind The Shining to me. Hmm. I think it's. I think it's very. Um, like I think The Shining does more in terms of like shock value and things we haven't seen done in cinema before. But this takes it in a direction of like the level of production blows me away on this movie like there were they went to the places like if this movie was made today they wouldn't have done it as much uh they would have done a lot of green screen it would have looked bad um (laughs) but like i remember thinking while like there's a specific shot in the movie uh it almost all of the movie feels like an actual painting and i think a lot of that has to do with the amount of makeup every single character wears because that's just the way the world was then Mm-hmm. Yeah. it kind of removes them. It doesn't make them look as real. And the way film and light, because they use a lot of natural lighting, the way that all worked, it just felt like a painting to me. And there's once, do you guys remember the shot where um, the, it's towards the end and he's in the boat with the dog and his son and they're yeah. fishing. And then oh, it's yeah. just that slow mm-hmm. zoom and there's the bridge and there's the castle. I'm like, this is a literal moving oh. painting. And oh, the zooms. I think, the like, zooms. <laughs> so many dramatic zooms. Especially zooms. at it was like five within five minutes. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. So good. And I think because this feels so different to me, uh, I th- I would put this high up on my on my Kubrick list. It, it just it's just so impressive. That's nice. that's the best way I can say it. it's just so impressive. I'm I'm glad to hear it. Uh, and yeah, the, the uh, cinematography was actually considered rather uh, groundbreaking. There weren't a lot of movies at the time that a lot of them were shot on location, but that went this above mm-hmm. and beyond with making it look like the greatest goddamn thing that had ever been made. Yeah, uh, and they yeah. succeeded. Oscar-winning cinematography, rightfully so. Uh, John Alcott is a cinematographer on that, uh, who actually... Also, also uh, did a lot of other really famous movies. Uh, some for Stanley Kubrick was uh, the cinematographer for Two Thousand One, and A Clockwork Orange, and The Shining. So, oh, wow, good damn resume, good, yeah. damn good cinematographer there. Uh, would you watch it again? Do you think uh, maybe not like tonight or anything? But do you think this is something that you could see yourself revisiting? Yeah, I, I want to show it to somebody. I want to watch it hmm. with somebody. To kind of partic- see their reaction. Yeah, particularly somebody who maybe isn't that familiar with this style of film. Hmm. Like, I have a lot of friends who 
you know, they don't watch anything before the nineties or something. And I'm, uh, it just makes me want to slap them. And right. if yeah. they're out there. I think, they're out there. I think this is, uh, this is a type of movie where it would be torturous until they get hooked, <laughs> which will happen as, exactly. as has been established. Like, no matter what there, there will be a part of this movie that will, you cannot look away from whether you enjoy it, whether you don't, whether you're fascinated. I want to see that from somebody. I, w- I want to see the pain in their eyes. There's like a historical drama for the 18th. Oh my God, this sounds horrible. And then like, I can't look away. I want to see the turn. Cause I know where the turn was for me. I want to see where it is for everybody else. Interesting. Yeah. For me, it was uh, when the credits started rolling, when that, <laughs> like, when the giant, like overture theme starts. Oh, I remember yes. when uh, Jason and Guy and I saw it, we were humming that the entire time I was driving <laughs> them back home. Yeah. I'm and I, I know it. we're going to be humming it for the rest of the night. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I watched oh, I it twice just... in, the, in the past two days. Oh, did you really? Nice. Did any yeah. did the did the second viewing shed any uh, interesting light that hadn't you hadn't had before? I mean, the second viewing was was me just really uh, trying to show my family the movie, hmm. um, and none of them wanted to see it. Yeah, <laughs> because like Anthony said, it's you know it's difficult to really be excited and show people a movie from this time. It just it, it seems weird to certain people. Um, if if they're committed to it not being for them, then they yeah. will fulfill that commitment. I think yeah. that yeah. much is clear. Mm-hmm. I didn't. They didn't watch it, um, but <laughs> I watched. I watched it again, and I love. There it. you go. That's all yeah. that matters. I wish I had seen this movie when I was like 16 years old. I think that would have been the perfect time because that was when I was just starting to get into like a lot of the history of cinema, like from across all, uh, you know, all time periods, all genres and stuff. And this would have blown my mind. And it it did even seeing it at however old I was a year ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> I know that's a weird thing to say, but hard uh, numbers to crunch. I know, right? (laughs) I I don't really do that math. Math has never been my strong suit. Let me find my calculator. Maybe one day. Call Uh, my tax guy. (laughs) There you go. My Uh, tax guy's name is Barry Lyndon. (laughs) What a coincidence. How weird. Hey, Barry. (laughs) Barry, yeah. One thing, uh, one one more thing uh, specifically that I do want to bring up is kind of something I mentioned a little bit earlier is this movie's place amongst Stanley Kubrick's career. Uh, first, I actually, I want to ask, uh, I want to ask you, Jason, uh, you are actually on an extra milestone earlier this year where yeah. we talked about the shining. I know you'll always be partial to that one, but where, yeah. where does this rank for you? Where do you think uh, this, um, you would place well, this? Yeah, I think this third viewing, uh, which was actually this morning, um, really cemented it as my second favorite i think tied with 2001 possibly um i guess i'd have to watch 2001 again but uh i might even put barry linden above 2001 i i I, I can't i can't be i know i know yeah um but yeah i'd I'd, I'd have to watch 2001 again but i i I mean i think it is hard to tell which is how can you decide which is better shot because they're so differently they're so differently shot, yeah. but like yeah. they're they're both masterpieces of cinematography, and like yep. that's one thing I would never be able to decipher. Yeah, same with music and 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I can't tell which one is better music. I got to admit, I've been kind of racking my brain for a couple of hours now. This may have, like, it was in my top three immediately when I saw it. Uh, It was this, Paths of Glory, and 2001. This may have taken the top space. Like, it just keeps getting higher so i it's it's so hard to decide uh the thing i've always said is that of if if you're technically including everything as in all the shorts all the b movies everything that kubrick did uh there are 16 feature films of which i've seen all of them uh and i have said that nine of them are like god level and seven of them are just not particularly good the worst of which being the seafarers which is a documentary yeah, about naval enthusiasts. Ooh, exciting. And that's yeah. it. It very much seems like this kind of thing that was commissioned to Kubrick. Like, all right, Stan, your first assignment is you got to make a documentary picture about the exciting world of being a seafarer in this little town. <laughs> and it get and it got just as much enthusiasm as it deserved. Like, I remember nothing about that movie but those top nine are undeniably among the greatest uh that there are and this is at least in my top three possibly even my top one like it's so it's so hard to decide but like i said just kind of that spiritual enlightenment that i get from watching this movie uh is is it, it cannot be argued with um guy have what how many uh how many kubrick movies do you think you've seen Ooh. Um, I mean, I've seen the, you know, all the hits. Um, right. I don't know if I've seen the, the all the B-sides. Um, Way the hits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, You've never seen the Flying Padre from 1953? <laughs> Can't say just making things up. I yeah. swear making, to God. Making titles I swear up. to God. Look that up. <laughs> that's that's a short about a biplane. Oh. Good. Sounds exciting. <laughs> That's that. Precisely. that might be my new number one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Watch it and find out. <laughs> I'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, um, but but so so a decent number, I take it. Yeah. 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 So so are you kind of in the same boat that it's uh, rather high amongst them? Oh, for sure. I think The Shining is probably still my favorite of his, and mm. then I think I would put 2001 next, and then this one. We've um, got two Shining Bros in the house. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of The Shining. Um, Here's Jason. I love it. <laughs> Here I yeah. am. Yeah, I think this might be my <laughs> my third of his. I'm picturing just a, that shot with Jack Nicholson's face poking through, except it's Jason's face. Like, hey, it's what's me, up? Jason. <laughs> just checking in on you. <laughs> the door's locked. <laughs> what's that about? <laughs> I had to use an axe to get in, guys. <laughs> Come on, come on, Wendy. <laughs> Give me another chance. Oh Hand over that bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, the reason I bring that up is because uh, there's, as I said before uh, a couple times, actually, this holds a very unique place in Kubrick's career. I think that was 
partly because of just geographically, not geographically, chronologically where it's located, <laughs> right between, uh, let's say geographically, screw it. Geographically, yeah. it's yeah. right between Clockwork Orange and The Shining, which are two movies that, for lack of a better term, have gained a lot of mainstream appeal in, in the past uh, 40, 50 years that they've each been out. This is right in the middle of them. It's unlike either of them. And I think there are clearly a lot of thematic leanings that are clearly very uh, Kubrickian. As I said, kind of that existential nothingness uh, is is very similar to a lot of what 2001 and Clockwork Orange are getting at. And this is definitely there. But it's just kind of this weird beast. And it's not often brought up by uh, a lot of people who aren't taking a deep dive, who aren't making a point to see everything do uh, does anyone have a theory on maybe why that is besides the obvious that it's uh you know a period piece that's really long and everything Hmm. i mean maybe it just doesn't get that much attention in terms of because he does have such a impressive resume Hmm. like you hear you hear like shining full metal jacket like you said the the movies that have popular appeal this certainly does not have popular appeal it has artistic appeal, but right. I think that maybe that's why people will talk about it as much. Yeah, I think that's the reason why a lot of cinephiles will really like it and and really kind of uh, uh, advocate for it and push for it to get more attention. Yeah, I mean, um, we've been ner- nerding out about it for an hour. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, and this this may be an arbitrary question, but uh, I want to put just a little spin on it. If someone had never seen. A Kubrick movie before would this be a good introduction or would it be too alienating I I mean personally I'd show something yeah I'd show something else yeah but, uh, yeah maybe you maybe you want to the make them a fan first and then exactly show them this. yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> like look at like what do you what do you guys think is the most you know for lack of a better word uh, commercial movie he's made hmm Probably The Shining, honestly. It's a Stephen King novel. It's horror. It's got a lot of recognizable stars. It's probably the one. I'd say either that or uh, Full Metal Jacket because a lot of people like war movies. Uh, I think if you show those and then they they go, who's this Kubrick guy? I want to see more. Then you show this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would also say – I would say you got to do Eyes Wide Shut last. I can attest (laughs) to that. but. I would yeah. I would also throw in maybe Clockwork Orange as an introduction just if oh, if yeah. they're yeah, into yeah. like the more uh, for lack of a better term mature thematic mm-hmm. material Fair. that would be a good one to start with because that's a very uh, fast paced enjoyable movie uh, yeah there's there are so many great ones to choose from mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, Barry Lyndon I think we've we've gone on about a lot of the things that we like about it that we maybe don't like about it of course we could go on for much much longer but we do have to move on sooner or later so let's stop talking about this kubrick movie and let's talk about another one let's talk about another one and and this is interesting and i did not plan this when um when uh, i kind of put together the lineup for this week it's another one that kind of sticks out from uh kubrick's filmography for and and there's a lot more of a reason for this one, which we'll get into. It is the 1960, you know, first century BC uh, epic, Spartacus. Nine Roman armies have been destroyed. 
by Spartacus. Spartacus, a motion picture unequaled in the entire history of filmmaking, unlikely ever to be surped in the tenderness and beauty of its love story. Nothing was spared to make Spartacus the superb achievement it is. Neither time, nor money, nor talent. For in Spartacus, you will see the finest cast ever assembled relive history's most exciting and inspiring drama. Starring Kirk Douglas as Spartacus, slave, gladiator, invincible fighter. Laurence Olivier as Crassus, symbol of Rome's majesty and might. I'm not after glory. I'm after Spartacus. Gene Simmons as the slave Arinia, whose body was bought and sold, but whose love enveloped Spartacus with a radiance few men have known. Charles Lawton as Gracchus, the leader of the Roman Senate. Peter Ustinov as Batiatus, shrewd and devious dealer in human flesh. John Gavin as Julius Caesar, ambitious staff officer. And Tony Curtis as Antoninus, who loved Spartacus like a brother. In the powerful story of the gladiator rebel who sprang from slavery to challenge the awesome might of Imperial Rome. The symbol of the Senate, all the power of Rome. I imagine a god for slaves. I pray for a son who'll be born free. Uh, now, first, I just want to uh, take the time to say that I am Spartacus. Yeah, I am uh, Spartacus. Actually, I am Spartacus. I'm not. So that's how it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to get crucified. I'm good. I'm not. A, I'm not him. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah, I bet there was one guy in that crowd. Yeah. Who <laughs> was Me. the Jason yeah. of yeah, the he, crowd. Yeah. He just mouths it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. He's you know, that's... It's that dude up front. That famous scene, <laughs> it's like the Holy Grail from Monty Python, uh, or no, from uh, Indiana Jones 3, where it's like the one that you don't think will be the Holy Grail. Aha! That's it! <laughs> that's probably what the deal was. As it turns out, to make the intended uh, sound effect for that scene in which all of these uh, escaped slaves who are rebelling and revolting all yell, I'm Spartacus, to defer the blame away from the actual leader. Uh, the way that Kubrick did that was he went to a football stadium and somehow yeah. convinced everyone there to yell it out at the same time. Like, yeah. I don't know how... That that's very impressive, and those are some very compliant fans, I suppose, because God knows there would be some rebels now who would just be like, "No, I'm going mean, to yell something else." Ridiculous, you know. Football fans love Kubrick, right? I mean, <laughs> totally. I guess I guess they did in 1960 <laughs> when he'd done like two big movies, <laughs> yeah, and was a director for hire on this thing. This thing of the three movies that we're going to talk about today, I think Spartacus easily has the most fascinating kind of backstory to it. Uh, does anyone yeah. here, I, uh, Guy, I take it that you're uh, aware of some of it. Uh, uh, Anthony, Jason, do, what do you know about kind of how this came to be? Well, it's the it's Dalton uh, Trumbo, right? Oh, yeah. Right. Brian yeah. Cranston himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Brian Cranston played by Dalton Trump. Um, yeah, the, the, the whole blacklist thing. And, uh, this was, uh, Kirk Douglas came around and he's like, I want you to write this and I'm going to put your name in the credits. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a big, big risky move for Kirk Douglas. Bold oh yeah. Move. One thing I found out. Yeah. And he, that, uh, he, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Oh, okay. I was going to say, uh, uh, Trumbo wasn't like allowed on set right like uh, i i heard they had to like sneak him in uh not initially to, though it wasn't oh, until really? the, it wasn't until kirk douglas advocated uh for him to be allowed into the studio uh, that uh, that that ended up happening and i think and this is just a quote it probably did not go down exactly this way but the quote that i read was that trumbo said to kirk douglas said thank you kirk for giving me back my name and that's got to be uh, that's sure, got to be really exactly powerful. Said. Yeah. Dalton mm. Trumbo, who was a writer who was blacklisted for alleged uh, uh, alignment with the Communist Party in the 1950s, ghost wrote a lot of famous movies, uh, most notably Roman Holiday before this with uh, Love that movie. Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. It's so good. If you haven't seen Roman Holiday, definitely uh, check it out. And uh, what, this, this is kind of funny. One thing I found out is that the pseudonym that he was writing under, Sam Jackson, how about that? <laughs> oh wow! Say what again, Spartacus? Swear. Why is that funny? <laughs> who's Who's Sam Jackson? I don't get it. Jason, you're such an Jeez. ass. You know exactly who you're Sorry. talking about. It's yeah. Samuel Jackson would have been 12 years old at the time, so not uh, nothing nothing that anyone would have made and a joke still about at the time. Terrifying. Exactly. <laughs> Just as exactly. Scary. Uh, and yeah, and there's actually a lot, I, we've already kind of touched on a little bit, a lot of fascinating stuff went into this. Uh, it kind of, it initially came about when, and I didn't know this, Kirk Douglas did not get the lead role in William Wyler's Ben-Hur, a role that would ultimately go to Charlton Heston. And he was actually rather upset about that and said, well, I'm going to do my own you know, pre-Christ uh, epic. And he got a hold of this book by uh, Howard Fast, who wrote the novel Spartacus, based on the actual slave who uh, escaped and sort of led a rebellion in the first century BC. And uh, what happened was that Howard Fast was initially going to adapt his own book to film and it just wasn't working out like it was they were trying and failing and we were like okay we got to get this trumbo guy and uh kirk douglas was a really heavy advocate of ending the blacklist which was essentially the 1960s version of when someone was canceled it's interesting how we're going through a little bit of a similar thing now where just Everyone was disassociating with someone because of these things, real or not, like justified or otherwise, uh, yeah. alleged. It was, it, or it was like true. a witch hunt, yeah. right? They were like kind of finger pointing. Kind of, that guy's a communist, and then he'd get fired the next day after no investigation. Sniffing right. out communists, yeah, just yeah. trying to alienate uh, everyone else. Watch the 1956 invasion of the body snatchers if you want a really interesting kind of allegorical sci-fi angle on that whole time period. It's really, really fascinating. Um, but yeah, and they were essentially like Hollywood curse words, essentially. Uh, they were like George Lucas in the year 2011. Like you couldn't even say their name <laughs> without getting a whole lot of a whole lot of venom as a result. And so they had to write under pseudonyms 
uh, for a lot of it. And Kirk Douglas was like, this is, we, we, we got to stop this and almost single handedly ended it. Like he was the one who really advocating, who really advocated, I should say, for getting Trumbo's name in the credits, which indeed is there. You watch the movie. Now you see mm-hmm. written by Dalton Trumbo. It's glorious. Uh, and uh and uh, jfk once a movie came out kind of broke the blacklist and went to see the movie uh, i think maybe it would like crossed a picket line or something and that was kind of it right there like it it died over the course of a year uh the entire uh uh blacklist and everything the f- the most interesting fun fact i read about spartacus is that there was another actor who was really wanting to make specifically a Spartacus movie around that time. And because Kirk Douglas beat him to it, Yul Brynner's Spartacus was never made. Mm, That would have been interesting. (laughs) I would have loved to see two Spartacuses from like less than a year apart. It would have been like some Armageddon deep impact thing. I think he could have done it too. Of course. Yeah. And, And this is, this is like, you know same year as a uh, magnificent seven and everything so it might have taken a little bit longer but even still can you imagine like it, it can't have been bad you know or if it no. was it would have been legendarily bad and that would have just been <laughs> next level like have you ever seen spartacus with yul brenner it's one of the <laughs> it would be like this thing that hollywood has tried to erase in the 60 years since then <laughs> like that uh, jerry lewis movie the day the clown cried um it would be still it would just be so that. I we're four more years. We're gonna get to see it. Oh yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to do that. That will be like a weird extra milestone in yeah. some fashion. Uh, but anyway, yeah. And uh, the most fascinating thing about this is that uh, what I was mentioning earlier with how it relates to Kubrick's career, Stanley Kubrick was a director for hire on this movie that they brought in after had a uh, production had started. They had filmed the opening sequence, which is taking place in this huge, like mountain range, this huge quarry and everything. They had gotten director, Anthony Mann, who had directed a handful of Westerns, couple of noir movies. And it was clear within a week that like, okay, this man guy is really not, cut out for this like they could tell that this was not going to be able to be sustained for the entire production period and it's like i say never trust someone named man they're always <laughs> up to no good especially with two ends that's the scene yeah. <laughs> interstellar reference or what? exactly yeah that's, <laughs> that's a reference to a few things weirdly enough just a few weeks ago on extra milestone we did michael mann's heat so i guess i'm gonna have to uh, eat those words yeah, yeah. retroactively <laughs> now um Man did the uh, the salt mine opening, right? Yeah, the opening scene where we are first introduced to Spartacus, who's yeah, the, just the guy's slave shopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Peter Ustinov shows up and is like, "Oh, I like that one. There's some uh, some nice muscle on that one," oh, and is so taken to this camp. That movie. Just that first uh, scene is is directed by anthony mann as far as i know they did not reshoot that so okay. uh, one little you know now, like him and, him and uh, uh, douglas didn't get along uh, from what i've read that was like one of the main uh factors for him him being fired i believe i think yeah more or less they were just kind of not 
seeing eye to eye that the thing you'll find out very quickly in doing research for this is that this is way more so than a kubrick auteur project this is a kirk douglas joint like it's one of those mm. things where the actor really <laughs> is driving it uh, i did producer yeah exactly yeah yeah and uh so yeah you, you there's he's kind of the main driving force behind this um but you do see a lot of really great uh cinematography that would be that you would kind of associate with Kubrick later on down the line in retrospect. So that's really interesting. Now, uh, at last we get to this, the interesting part of the show where we talk about kind of, uh, our history with it. So, uh, Jason, I want to start with you. What is, uh, uh, I imagine that you heard about this movie some time ago. Um, yeah. was there any particular reason? Cause this was your first time seeing it, correct? Yeah. 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 Was there any reason that you uh, you put it off for as long as you did, or just never got around to it? Uh, honestly, I just um, a, a lot of the older Stanley Kubrick movies. Um, I just you know the, either I haven't had access to them, or I just I don't know haven't <laughs> wanted to watch them. Really, hmm. um, I think this was the no, this is the oldest one I've seen. Uh, and, and, oh really you haven't so you haven't yeah. seen paths of glory i haven't then? seen paths of glory fear and desire the other ones hmm. uh, what, uh about the paths airplane, of glory and maybe the killing are the only ones oh okay really no I'm, I'm stupid i've seen the killing i watched that a couple weeks ago uh oh really so i've seen that <laughs> well that's um, nice <laughs> yeah 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 okay so yeah i take back everything <laughs> but th- so so this is definitely lower on the chronological list then yes yeah okay and what about you guy was this also your first uh watch of this yeah this is my first watch of this um i had seen uh plenty of clips of this movie previously but i never ha- was too interested in watching it mainly just because it never really looked like a kubrick movie yeah and i that always thought that that was odd and so i always just kind of just put it off to the side and i was like i'll get to it eventually you know that is kind of the weird thing is that uh, you know as much as i want to say like oh yeah we can see you know the seeds that would blossom into the kubrick we know now there's no particular reason that this couldn't have been done by another director of epics matter of fact uh, david lean was in line to direct this uh, who did Mm -hmm. uh, lawrence of arabia uh, bridge on the river kwai Mm -hmm. and little behind the scenes fact listeners and dr Zhivago, a movie we almost considered adding to this week's lineup and then ultimately decided three is enough dear god so uh but yeah so so maybe someday we'll circle back around and get to that uh but yeah there's nothing like insanely kubricky about this movie so i think uh I, i can definitely see why um anthony i'll ask you the uh the the same question um what uh, how how did you uh, first hear about this movie? Well, I yeah, I've only seen it once, but I didn't watch it for this. I just happened to have watched it um, a few weeks ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and a, I mean, I I've heard of it. Everybody knows the classic, like I am Spartacus scene. Right, like that's been parodied in you know a million TV shows and movies, including Life of Brian, kind of oh, the yeah. most obvious one where it's kind of the reverse where they say like all right if you're Brian you cannot be crucified and everyone's like oh i'm Brian <laughs> and so <laughs> <Yeah>. is my wife <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly uh 
this this movie had a less enjoyable crucifixion scene. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't bring the cheer. They didn't bring the music. Very disappointing overall. Nor did Not, they intend to. To be fair, but this movie still. wasn't even a little funny. You guys, I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> is <laughs> but, is there a, is there anything funny in this movie? I can't recall uh, yes, off the top the, of my head. Uh, I, I guess it's cruel. The, and funny, but the, the kind kid, of I don't oh. the. Yeah, maybe I don't remember. I don't remember anything. Kid there, actually, the, goat milk humor. in the face. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, maybe <laughs> that. There's Didn't he drown scene. someone in chili or something? That was oh, he drowned that someone in good. soup. Yeah, that was soup. That, that dude broke his jaw during that scene. <laughs> that is such oh, really? a really yeah. That is Ooh, such a no. Roman Republic way to kill someone. You know, yeah. like drowning them in in you know just food it's like the that's spark of the did. revolution right there mm-hmm. what when the uh, oh what was <laughs> i gonna say need. a second ago oh yeah there's one scene that i find like kind of funny but obviously it wasn't intended to be just because of you know hindsight and stuff there's a scene that when i first saw it i thought was completely random and then i realized there's a very clear subtext i was missing out on the first time and it's a scene where there is some very obvious uh coded bisexual subtext where you've got laurence olivier as crassus who's kind of the antagonist of the movie and and then you got tony curtis as uh, antoninus who's kind of an underling for a little while and then uh, ultimately joins uh spartacus and the other uh, rebelling slaves and stuff but there's a scene where it's just antoninus like massaging crassus and then crassus is saying like so you know some people prefer oysters some prefer snails <laughs> i happen to prefer both and it's so random without that subtext and i it's a ama- i'm amazed it flew over my head the first I time so that scene was lost for a little bit yeah it was, it was kind added. of the theatrical version yeah yeah because it's so extraneous you know you yeah. could tell it was just kind of a cheeky thing that they threw in i'd be curious to find out that if uh if that was in the book or not or if that was just something that someone on the set had the bright idea like let's throw in this really random like you know bisexual <laughs> subtext i mean scene. maybe maybe trumbo thought of it maybe, maybe so oh, maybe yeah makes sense that kind of that kind of stuff is all over those movies of the era uh oh yeah if, if you if you look hard enough mm-hmm. uh going back to like the dawn of cinema mm-hmm. obviously uh so i find that scene kind of amusing just because of what it is and the nature of it and how it mm-hmm. fits into this movie and history at large um but yeah i think uh what you were mentioning the whole i am spartacus scene that's kind of what the movie is most famous for now this really yeah. famous kind of a, a crescendo some would call it and it's quotable of course because it's a bunch of people saying the same line it's rather simplistic uh, yeah, it's, but- it's, it's a it's a scene that it's a lot of movies use that as an example to show how you know courageous characters can show their courage and bravery and selflessness that i think it, this is a really good example and it seems corny now that they've it's been done so many times but it's it's a very good moment in the movie no i yeah i teared up during that Same, single yeah. tear just it affected just me emotionally like, yeah, yeah just like uh uh, Douglas, he's just got that single tear. Oh, it's yeah. great. There yeah. you go. The Lord of the Rings tear. I bet that yeah. was the inspiration right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly didn't find it corny at all. I, th- I also no, thought it was yeah. very... Uh, yeah moving so so i guess uh we we've got three sort of newcomers here uh let's just let's just uh continue with you anthony what did you uh what did you think of it what are your takeaways from this i mean of all the all the epics we watched for this episode i this one seemed the the like it seemed to be the purest form of epic 
Mm-hmm. Like it's a yeah. grand adventure. It has um, the love story. It has the big villain. It has the the big battle scenes. It has the the tragic ending. Yeah. Um, it got the scope. It's got the length. It's the longest of the three movies. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it it's like when I think of epic, I think of the you know, movies like this, like Ben Hur, uh, Cleopatra of this of this kind of time period. Yeah. Um, the big the epics of the the sixties. Um, you know, color was becoming huge at this time. It, uh, it was really popping more and it, the, I, I, I enjoyed it for the scope of it. Hmm. Um, and I also liked that the, 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 the action, the combat scenes are very, very well done. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with those. Um, I, I think it's hard to pull off action in that time period. Cause like the blood always seems extra bright red cause it's like paint or something. And then some of the the sword fighting, you can tell they're pulling away. But I thought, you know, they really went for it in this movie, and it really, it really showed. And I thought, um, even though Kubrick was like the director for hire, you can still see the the skill and talent he brought to it. And like, I, I enjoyed it very much. Right, especially in the uh, photography, like I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. As it turns out, Kubrick was really at odds with the yeah. cinematographer yeah. Russell Meddy a lot. Was like trying to tell him how to do his job, uh, and Russell Meddy kind of like disowned this movie for a little while until he won an Oscar for it and was like, "Ah, eh, water under the bridge. <laughs> it is what it is." Had I heard that you. <laughs> I heard that Kubrick like did, shot most of it himself without the cinematographer. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I can only imagine how he felt when, when he won an Oscar and was like, I did that. Right. Well, it wasn't your job, Stanley. So <laughs> I guess there's only, I guess there's only look so at the credits, bub. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. didn't Kubrick that's also not, or kind of disown this. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily disown, but just kind of disregard in a certain way. Like, okay, like, it's not like, um, how should I say this? It's it's not like something that he believes isn't true to himself. It's just kind of a thing that he doesn't really think about. Like, oh yeah, I did that. Like it was, yeah. you know, it was a year out of my life. Whatever. Um, you can tell that the enthusiasm was mostly in the writing and the acting, and honestly, that comes through more than enough. I can't see it being much better without or with a like really really enthusiastic director and everything like like kubrick didn't phone it in uh, no no, maybe emotionally but certainly not in on any technical level yeah Yeah, it was it was a well-done production yeah Mm -hmm. well because from what i read he just really was not a fan of uh the character of spartacus Hmm. he just didn't i don't know he just thought he was interchangeable with really any other hero yeah, I heard mm-hmm. he said that he thought he the character wasn't flawed enough. He thought the character was like yeah. too perfect. Yeah, I, can yeah, see I that. read that too. I can yeah. kind of see it. I also I I don't I don't think uh, it's it's a very classical kind of story. Like it's yeah. at this point all, like millennia old, so it makes sense that it would kind of harken back to really traditional storytelling techniques. It's a mm-hmm. very Joseph Campbell kind of thing it's very much like you know the rise from uh you know the rise from rock bottom to show the those in power like who we really are and everything and then leads a heroic death and everything and then goes on to leave a legacy that is is greater than anyone could ever have imagined for you know from such rags and such riches or lack of riches i suppose that kind of thing um 
It's interesting, uh, Anthony, what you brought up about the action, which is very impressive. There's there are a couple of battle scenes, a couple of gladiatory fights throughout the movie. One in particular where the the army of former slaves are like, I don't even know what they are. They're these giant flaming cylinders that they have attached to ropes that they're just sort of rolling towards the Roman Republic. And they run over a bunch of people, too. It's incredible. Yeah, you really get hit there. I would be amazed. Like I'm sure. I don't know. Or I guess I maybe I'm not sure. Again. Like I, I, I like to think they had protective gear on, but <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Maybe they just said to hell with it. You know, like you know, in, in the first, already over budget. Yeah. James Cameron had had Arnold Schwarzenegger just punch a window with his bare fist in the first Terminator, and that was decades really? later. So safety is not always the the paramount thing on yeah. filmmakers' minds. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that, so that, that fire is incredible. Yeah, but the action that is there is really fantastic. There are huge fights. There are smaller, intimate fights. Now, Jason, I remember we were uh, we were talking about this kind of, or, or we were texting about this actually uh, earlier this week about how there's there's kind of an interesting perception of this movie with a lot of people where it's kind of hard to quantify what genre it is. Cause as much as like, you know, there are the cool, big, epic, uh, sweeping action scenes and everything it's mostly dialogue it's mostly talking it's mostly just working things out figuring out what's the next move we're going to make cutting back and forth between good guys and the bad guys that kind of stuff um do you think that maybe that has uh has led this movie to be kind of uh to have kind of an interesting legacy where it is not often brought up when talking about Kubrick's filmography specifically, like it kind of blends into just movies in general. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, so one thing, I think somebody said this earlier, um, but one thing Kubrick movies aren't, uh, is, is boring. Mm Um, and you know, like Barry Lyndon, uh, the second half slows down quite a bit, but, it's never boring. Mm. Um, and, but I'd say Spartacus kind of does do that though, mm. where um, at least the, the, the middle portion and some of the last third uh, can, can be a bit sluggish. And that's just cause I, 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 I don't know. I, I never found the, the dialogue to be, that compelling during these mm. scenes um, it's pretty functional for the most part yeah it, it's serviceable for like an epic you know yeah especially that's kind of that's kind of the uh the rock in the hard place that i found with a lot of these big uh hollywood epics of the era and beyond is that there's kind of this compromise that they have to make we're like okay we're we've got a huge budget behind this thing. We got all these locations, all these, uh, stunts, the huge crew and everything. Um, do we feel the need to edit it down? You know, like why not just leave everything in, let this be as big as it can be. That's kind of the function of the epic in a lot of ways is to be as big as possible, even at the risk of maybe, uh, of, uh, maybe outstaying its welcome here and there. Yeah. Um, I was, did, did uh, guy and Anthony, did you have a thought on kind of the pacing on this movie and how it's, uh, how it, keeps going along or maybe doesn't 
Um, I've I've felt that a lot of it, like they they try to sprinkle in some good action to keep it to to keep it thrilling. Mm-hmm. But um, there is, like you were saying, there is a lot of just talking and. You know, Tony Curtis has is probably one. Is he might be my favorite character just because he he talks really well. Mm-hmm. Um, his yeah. dialogue worked, and he he had a he was very fun to watch. Um, but I think pacing it was a little, like you said, like epics are a genre, yeah. and this is certainly a, a genre. You know, epic where it 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 you know it, it checks all the boxes and. Could it have been a really strong, tight two-hour movie? Maybe. Yeah, two and a half even. Maybe, yeah, maybe even two and a half. But um, I don't think it's a mistake that Mm. they let it go on so long. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think they they chose their battles, and I think they chose them well. Even if there are parts that are rather tedious, that I think could have very easily been trimmed down, it just wouldn't have been the same spirit, you know. Yeah, yeah, guy. How did you feel about the uh, pacing of the movie? Uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much the same as you guys. It's just you know the the sections that are a little rough to go through, but I do love a good Senate scene. So I love <laughs> right. the Star Wars prequels. Yes, I am the Senate. Yeah, I love a good you know everyone being loud and boisterous in a Senate yeah. setting. <laughs> just Tony Curtis shouting, "Unlimited power!" Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And especially when you got like Lawrence Olivier, we haven't even mentioned the whole cast. We got Lawrence right. Olivier, uh, uh, Charles Lawton, director of Night of the Hunter, and nothing else, which is a crime, but also a very accomplished actor, uh, Shakespearean actor, as a matter of fact, and is really magnificent in this movie. Kirk Douglas, of course, Peter Ustinov, um, and uh, and uh, playing the uh, kind of the lover of spartacus whom he meets along the way is a uh, gene simmons no not that one i know what you're thinking that was my immediate reaction when i saw that name come up same here like, no i was like oh the rock star right i was like no way j-e-a-n simmons yeah. is who we're talking about and uh, and i really love her character in this movie i think she brings a lot of heart to it a lot of pathos mm-hmm. uh not necessarily the most uh fleshed out or three-dimensional character which is a little frustrating yeah. um but even still i think this is you know they're telling the story they feel like telling yeah um, i think their their scenes together are really sweet oh yeah um, they're really really remarkable her, frankly her theme i don't know if it's yeah. her theme uh or if it's just like the love theme of it but that is beautiful um they have that one scene where they're uh in the forest somewhere i don't know if they're in the forest for half of this movie yeah. um but uh they're just like it's hard to explain but they're just like uh really they're just like laughing about her escaping something and there's something just really sweet about it that isn't really in other movies of the time where both people are just like laughing with each other i don't know something about it when the ultimate like sacrifice kind of thing takes place it actually feels like something is being lost like this was really you know these were people who interacted with each other and had relationships romantic and otherwise so it really the the tragedy really comes final scene yeah scene is great 
I love that. Yeah, it's re- it's really fantastic. Yeah, I didn't expect did. uh, this this movie to be as emotional as it was. Mm-hmm. Same, uh, especially in that that second half. Yeah, you that's know, a weird you got thing. The boring stuff, but yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of tedious stuff. As we said, it runs hot and cold when it comes to being really intriguing on a moment to moment basis. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the interesting thing I found with uh, with rewatching this because I I just realized I never clarified earlier. Uh, I saw this once years ago i just turned into william shatner for whatever reason years ago and uh and uh it's so weird i only recall just the other day when i was rewatching it oh yeah i fell asleep for like half of it that first time so i it's 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 a crime that i ever considered myself to have watched it because i was i really missed out on something uh really impactful what got me right off the bat was the early scenes and they spend a long time because you know they've got it they spend a long time just showing spartacus's life as a slave and just how miserable it was to be a slave under the roman republic just this tyrannical force that was rolling all of mediterranea really with this with this iron fist just this uncaring uh uh, uh, tyrannical power and everything there's a scene that i also found this this is actually another scene i found kind of weirdly funny uh the subject matter isn't funny but just kind of the context of it where they have like essentially kind of conjugal visits for the slaves like they just kind of pair them up and send them to these cells and say like do whatever you feel like and spartacus gets uh paired up with someone and says i've never been with a woman before i'm like sure kirk douglas i'm sure you haven't (laughs) I got a little kick out of that. But yeah, it really shows just how miserable this thing is that they're escaping to the point where and it doesn't happen early on. Like it takes a while for them to really build up the, uh, uh, you know, the courage, if if nothing else, to escape. There's this great irony to it where they're training the slaves to fight each other in in little uh, gladiator arenas as they just sort of look on from the little or from the uh, big awning that they have and stuff they never consider that oh we're training our uh our captives to rebel against us while we just you know eat grapes directly off the vine and stuff so there's yeah. there's this irony right off the bat and it's really triumphant i i uh, i didn't mention earlier but one of the slaves is played by uh the great woody strode who i recognized immediately from once upon a time in Hol- uh in uh, not hollywood in the west in this opening scene where there's it's like this 10 minute scene of these three cowboys just waiting at a train station for charles bronson to show up woody strode is one of those cowboys and eventually kind of sacrifices himself in the initial escape that they uh instigate so mm-hmm. really great character there uh and uh and uh yeah when it comes to i want to talk a little bit about the kind of the thematic material of this movie because i was thinking this is this is actually a really rather uh, simplistic movie at the end yeah. of the day just when it comes to the messaging does is, does everyone kind of concur with that oh yeah yeah, yeah that's a, the thing that makes it f- like not really feel like a kubrick movie yeah is that you can tell he just sort of came in the story was already written he just kind of had to do that you know yeah 
Yeah. So, uh, but, but at the same time, does that, I, I guess this is the question I really wanted to ask. Uh, does that matter a whole lot? Like, is it too distracting to know that, uh, that this is a Kubrick movie and that it's so as epics go pretty straightforward. It's, it's an underdog story more or less. Um, and it doesn't go much deeper than that. Of course, there's history involved in everything, but even still, uh, did anyone have a thought on that? I think it's okay that it's pretty simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I've never had a problem with like, as long as the conclusion makes sense and it feels natural for the story and characters, I don't care how simple it is. Right. What, you know, it's not like they, they, they don't, they don't beat you over the head with the message, but it's there. Um, and yeah. that's, that's what I, that's what I like. And I think, I don't think that really distracts like, I think you're. It's it. it can, maybe you could approach it like a Shyamalan comparison. Mm. Like, where's the twist ending? You know, where's the confusing yeah, yeah. meaning in this? And I don't yeah. think that could really. You know, like uh, if you go into it looking for meaning, you could. You know, this is a big film student thing. They just make up meaning. They go the way he holds the spear means blah blah. <laughs> blah. Um, yeah. just, you know, cr- crap like that. Like, yeah. oh, he he took he stepped through the door with his left foot. That means metaphors. <laughs> um, just crap yeah, like that. Very I'm okay with that not being yeah. there, and I know that's very easy to pick apart in other Kubrick movies. And I yeah, I I don't think it's really distracting here. Yeah, it's a it's really big kind of brassy hollywood filmmaking at its best to the point where i think if i were to introduce or show this movie to someone i don't i wouldn't introduce it as a kubrick movie like i might not even mention that entirely i might just say like this is a a hollywood epic from 1960 one of the most iconic and still one of the best i think that's fair to say right yeah i think so i i haven't seen a lot of um epics from this time period but uh if they're anything like this i would i would watch them because yeah, overall, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, Ben-Hur is really similar. That's the obvious uh, comparison. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is a lot more complex, but it's the same yeah. kind of, it's the same filmmaking spirit. A lot of David Lean movies, as a matter of fact, so it makes sense that they would uh, they would tap him to, to direct it. So, yeah, they're out there. A lot of them have completely disappeared, which is weird. Um, but a lot of them are, a lot of them still hold up great to this day and uh it's a kind of movie that just isn't really much of a thing anymore granted nothing is much of a thing this year but even (laughs) outside of that uh it's it's just not a thing you see and if you do it just doesn't have the same feeling and they usually fail quite badly which is uh which is a shame of course, but uh, it's always good to be able to go back. And so I'm glad they were getting to do three of them today, yeah. which is exciting. Yeah, I mean, this movie's legacy, from what I know, is just like the Spartacus. I'm, I'm Spartacus scene. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, that scene actually has maybe one of the few bits of uh, little uh, contemporary connections. That scene is in the book and was initially intended as a comment on the whole blacklisting thing that was going on. So it's only Mm. fitting that uh, Trumbo would eventually end up getting involved. That's a whole you know, metaphor about showing solidarity in the midst of chaos when it seems like they're just out to get everyone and Mm -hmm. to sort of mold everyone in their image, essentially forcefully or otherwise. And 
just saying no and taking a stand. That's what it's all about. So it's it's even more uh, inspirational as a result of that. Yeah, kind of like set the tone for like what would be like the nature of like the rebellious 60s, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. I, I, I'll, I'm sure that uh, this movie was sort of brought up a lot in that kind of counterculture rhetoric. That's fascinating. I didn't, right. I didn't even think about that. Um, yeah, I was wondering, uh, we, we've talked a lot about Spartacus. Did anyone have uh, anything else specifically they wanted to uh, bring up about this before we move on to our third and final epic of the evening? There's there's lots of people in this. That's true. There's lots of people. <laughs> Does anyone know how many fact. people, how many extras are in this? Oh goodness, I at remember least five. reading it. Yeah, at, <laughs> at least, at, least. at the very least. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that scene, um, the most cute Kubrick part to me was that uh, um, at the beginning of the big battle scene when those uh, uh, the like the army from far away um, just gets into yeah. like its formation beautiful uh, yeah but oh my god there's so that was an intense people. scene yeah it's with incredible. the fire rolling over people it was a yeah that's <laughs> incredible <laughs> no, jason i have a number for you it was a budget of 12 million at the time which is equivalent to 105 million today okay. <laughs> uh and and kubrick was like you know was did not take this lightly this was bigger by far than anything he had ever done so this was maybe a little bit of a rite of passage and a cast of all told ten and a half thousand <laughs> wow oh wow yeah christ no yeah. wonder anthony mann was like dude I'm yeah. out. Like, yeah. there's, That's so much. There's only so much I could do. So they they call these epic for a reason. I think it's very yeah. And uh, and so with that, unless anyone had anything else, what say we move on to uh, our third and final film of the evening, the only one not directed by Stanley Kubrick, uh, directed by Akira Kurosawa. In fact, who happens to be my favorite director, as I mentioned on several occasions. Uh, this is, I think, the third Kurosawa movie on in the Extra Milestone history, and certainly will not be the last. There are lots of classics to go over as the years roll by. But we've got one more to talk about in the year 2020, and that is uh, kind of the last huge movie that kurosawa directed and a lot of people claim it's one of the best uh we'll see what we think but without any further ado it is translated into english as uh chaos it is ron
With an A. Now, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jason. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. This was uh, also one that uh, that you three were newcomers to, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yes. All right. And so I, I almost don't even want to ask because I feel like I kind of know the answer. I feel like a, I feel like at least Anthony and Jason are have heard of Akira Kurosawa most from me. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's it, it became there was a time when it was kind of this running gag where I would always just <laughs> find a way. And this can this maintains to this day where I would yeah. always find a way to bring up Akira Kurosawa. Uh he is my favorite director, like and it's not even close. Um so I will I try to find connections a lot of the time yeah i haven't, and, been, I haven't been bullied by you lately about not seeing seven samurai <laughs> not lately, not it, lately was, yeah. it was solaris for the longest it was time solaris and then i watched that and that's it's it's all out of jest <laughs> and love i, I hope know. you know, no, that, I, know. I know i know <laughs> yeah i'm not convinced but okay we'll move on uh was this and and i know guy that uh it wasn't yours and i'll 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 hear what you have to say in a second but uh anthony and jason was this both of your guys's first kurosawa movie it was mine fascinating fascinating i cannot wait to hear what you thought but first let's uh let's let's build up the suspense a little bit guy what's your uh familiarity with akira kurosawa um i always you know always heard of him and his all of his you know classics you know um people always bring up this is one that i never really heard people bring up that much oddly enough really? i always hear you know seven samurai and you know jimbo and you know all those but this one i never really heard people talk about for some reason and i was after i watched it, i was very curious as to why because i genuinely think it's an incredible film and yeah i was like why don't people talk about this more i'd realized that i had seen the shot of um the father leaving the the castle as it was burning yeah. down several times Oof. throughout different you know youtube videos and stuff but people just never really got into too much detail about it but um but yeah no i i, I loved this movie that is so weird you say that we clearly are frequenting different places on the internet because i heard <laughs> about this movie a ton and maybe it helps that i was kind of diving into uh kurosawa at an earlier age i think i was Fair. like 16 ish so uh i was really getting into it but it took a little while for me to finally get to this one something about it i found kind of intimidating maybe the fact that it was one of curse i was only color movies uh that it was a shakespeare adaptation and i'm kind of notoriously and shamefully unfamiliar with most of shakespeare's work and so i thought maybe i couldn't really uh get into it right and uh i remember it was actually also about three years ago uh for whatever reason i just i just decided you know what screw it today's the day and i gave it a watch and i i really enjoyed it i wouldn't call it one of my favorites of kurosawa maybe that'll change as i uh, rewatch it in future dates um but yeah i think it's it's really really solid so uh jason let's let's hear from you next uh what did you think of ron and also what I'll, I'll also ask because I'm very curious about it. In what ways did it live up or down to your expectations, if any? Well, so I had seen um, Dreams over the summer. I don't oh, know really? why that was, you know, the first <laughs> Kurosawa movie I decided to watch. That's um, a weird one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Really, really great. 
Um, Martin Scorsese as Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, All you need yeah, to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd seen that, uh, which isn't, you know, the most classic version of Kurosawa. I don't, I, I can't really speak on that. Cause I, I Oh, it's know. not. Yeah. You're not speaking out. Of yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. unusual. Yeah. So, uh, I was very excited to get to the kind of, uh, you know, epic stories that he's telling, uh, whether it's like Rashomon or, uh, which I still haven't seen. I'm sorry. Um, Rashomon is, is, is very intimate. So it's kind of, it's, uh, very opposed to Ron in almost yeah. every way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I was, I was excited to really get into the movies that everyone talks about, which is like Ron. You know, I feel like uh-huh. people don't talk about dreams that much. Not as much. anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, super excited for that. And I, I also loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I, I really like, I, I'm also not familiar with Shakespeare that much, but, mm. um, it, it, it's always interesting to me. And this just felt like a play that, you know, was being acted out on location and, mm. and that's always just entertaining to me. And very beautiful like location. Too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really remarkable looking movie. Yeah. It's uh, t- to be clear when it comes to the, uh, the Shakespeare thing, uh, as it turns out, you don't have to be familiar with Shakespeare. That's not as much of a caveat as you might think. This, this story is uh, based a lot on King Lear um, as I've, as I understand it, but it is certainly not uh, vital to be familiar with that story. At least uh, having not read the story, so maybe we're not we're not the authorities to ask. But uh, finally, let's uh, let let's hear from you, Anthony. Uh, I'll just ask the same question as to Jason. Uh, what did you think of Ron, and also how uh, how did it live up or down to your expectations? Well, most of what I have uh, heard about Kurosawa has been from other filmmakers, hmm. um, like how his movies have inspired all these westerns and Star Wars and Scorsese and Tarantino and how um, that's that's where most of uh, the, the reputation I've heard comes from. Um, so I was expecting, uh, I mean, I was expecting a masterpiece hmm. because that's that you have all you have all these incredible film, filmmakers um, just singing his praises. So I'm like, okay, well, let's let's. I'm curious because I have. It's not that I've been avoiding. It's just I it hasn't come up. Sure. Um, so I uh, when I watched it, I was I was what I was looking for. I think this is another example for me as um, cinema as an art form. Uh, I was looking at the framing. I was looking at the color. I was looking at the composition of these, the way these characters move because they're very, you know, the, the Japanese way of, of moving is very specific. Hmm. And I think, um, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I, I had, I haven't seen a lot of movies like this. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've, I, most of the Japanese cinema I'm familiar with is like the old Godzilla's from like the fifties and sixties. Right. Um, so the schlock is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the the big the big B movies, the big right. you know, the the miniatures <laughs> with the with the guy in the suit. So I, I, I didn't have expectations other than I was expecting to see an incredible 
film. Um, so, and I, I mean, that's, that's what I saw. Like it was, I was blown away by the, by the, the shot composition and the cinematography, the, the use of color, the, the location, the way he shows that location. It's the, the mountainsides are insane to me. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't deal with it. I had, it was, it was like, I had, oh. <laughs> I was like, I, I paused it multiple times just just to study, <laughs> just to study specific frames. Like, why is it here, and why why did he place that character there? My favorite shot in the whole movie is when the they sacked the city, uh, the 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 temple, and um, it's that shot through the window, and there's a burning arrow, and that that is that that's like one of the best shots like ever, and I uh, that's that's basically what I was expecting to see. Um, because you know all my favorite directors, you know they they love Kurosawa, and uh, I, I think I'll be I'll be joining them. Oh, nice! I'm glad to hear it. So so would so this was uh this got you jazzed to see more is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I just just in terms of studying the art of film, I was like I'm I'm hooked. Very nice. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that going in because when I pitched this idea to you guys like it must have been about a month ago now it occurred to me like am i doing them a disservice like is this a good introduction to kurosawa because i wouldn't know because i saw it well into my uh uh, kurosawa education so i guess it wasn't something that i could really connect with and it sounds like it was so i'm glad to hear i think so yeah very much so yeah, uh, yeah. This the story. Just to give a little uh, rundown of it, is about an elderly lord who is just ruling over this kingdom in uh, Japan. And it's actually, I, sh- I really should look up the exact uh, time period because I'm not entirely uh, positive. I'll figure it out later. The point is, is that there's a <laughs> there's a lord has three sons and. We open on like this kind of picnic thing that they're having outdoors. And it's this just right off the bat, some of the most amazing cinematography you've ever seen. Some of the oh, most yeah. the brightest colors and oh, like yeah. just the the most mm-hmm. elegant uh framing of all time. Sound As it turns too. out Akira Kurosawa was in the process of going blind when this movie was made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the man really just ha- just had a mission and it turned when storyboarding this movie wasn't just drawing what it would turn out to be made paintings of the scenes like this is uh, this is like anthony was saying this is true uh this is cinema in its most artistic form in its most pure uh, uh sense of artistic expression and everything like that but we open on this picnic, and uh, all of a sudden, Lord uh, Lord Ichimonji is uh, is uh, falling asleep. It's like, uh oh, what's going on here? And wakes up and is like, oh gosh, I'm you know, it's starting. I'm starting to slip. My mind is starting to go away. And that day decides to give. Uh, control over all the land to his oldest son and of course and I think this is maybe kind of what the movie is getting at more than anything else of course conflict ensues where there is power there will be conflict no matter what is that something that uh, is that something that you all uh, were able to pick up on 
while seeing this? No, 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 no problems here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really I think it's Chris. I it's was really, trying to say yeah. it's really implicit in the in the title, which is chaos. I think it's such a it's such a brilliant title because it gives this impression right off the bat that like there will be, because we have these systems. Whether, whatever you want to call it, you know, like government, power structures, society, civilization, everything. We have these civil uh, uh, systems that have been implemented in various forms throughout the world and throughout time that have this kind of ideal form. That's one of the things that Lord Ichimanji says at the very beginning is he does the what I instantly uh, thought of as the apes together strong thing from Rise of the Planet <laughs> That's of the exactly Apes. What I thought of. <laughs> where you get like one, in this case, arrow, easy to break. You bundle them together and and it's harder to break because they're sticking together you know they're they're stronger together and everything when of course the youngest son is like no i can do it see i'll prove it to you (laughs) and so it sounds funny when i describe it because i'm kind of playing it up for comedic effect but what i got right off the bat was kind of this implication that like there will always be someone who is either unsatisfied with the way things are or is maybe just curious to see if they can throw a wrench into it, whether or not they actually realize it. And because we have all these systems and they have these ideal forms, like when someone describes how it should work, it sounds great. Like, yeah, of course, you know, this person should have power. And then uh, it's the whole separation of powers thing. Uh, This person should control that. This one should control that. It sounds like it should work perfectly, but because it's human beings with emotions and with, uh, you know, susceptibility and things like that involved all the time, it just it just can't happen. And it's actually a very nihilistic movie at the end of the day, you know? Yes, very nihilistic. That's yeah, my favorite uh, part about it. I like nihilism. There you go. Yeah, this movie is very few moments of uh, levity and hope in this movie, although there are some really magnificent uh, performances that really steal the show for a lot of it. Um, Jason, I want to ask just kind of in general, uh, besides what we've already talked about, kind of the aesthetic of it, the visual look of it, uh, what was something that really stuck out to you about this? The castle scene. The castle raid. Oh, my goodness. When it's kind of uh, uh, the initial, uh, kind of the first huge conflict, you know? Yeah, it, that's incredible. I, sound I, I drops mean, out. Yeah, sound drops out. Uh, they have arrows flying. I mean, how do you guys know how they do the arrow things? Like how they do that? Because uh, it seems they, dangerous. It is. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it's it's unde- it's undoubtedly dangerous. Yeah. Um, I know that what they did for certain movies, I don't know if uh, for this one in particular, but they would uh, reverse the footage where they would have some way of pulling the arrow out of the wall really rapidly yeah. using like a string or but something. There's no way they're doing that in this one. I know there's there's just too damn many. Of them. Someone will be at a door, uh, run into the door and then a second after three arrows hit the door right where he was. Incredibly uh, precise archers i I suppose that's that was my theory i guess Um, high-paid stuntmen yeah yeah yeah. it's amazing no one died on this set it's crazy yeah uh there's the scene i'm sure you guys saw some guys just getting run over by a horse getting stepped on by a horse he's just laying there 
and there's a bunch of horses going over him, and most of them missing, but a few uh, trample his legs. Definitely, definitely hit him. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And then there's the whole um, little almost montage of just people falling off horses. <laughs> a lot of uh, montages of yeah. death. Yeah, but yeah, movie. that castle scene is beautiful. It's insane. And yeah. I'm going to tell you something, Jason. That uh, that whole thing where the music drops out and everything, that's very uncharacteristic of a lot of the earlier Kurosawa movies. There's very few of like the black and white ones that have something like this. So this is really uh, it, this really sets itself apart in that way. A lot of the time, uh, Kurosawa would just go for the diegetic sound um, in a lot of the earlier samurai movies and everything. Maybe have like a really uh, understated score in the background, but not much else. This, it's all score for so long. And then yeah. there's this one... It's a long scene. Yeah, it's a really yeah. long scene, but it's really riveting. And yeah. then there's just this thing that happens, and then, bam, the diegetic sound comes back in. Mm-hmm. and it's Yeah, the silence is broken by a gunshot in the guy's it's, back. Right. That's it's right. breathtaking. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that. I was like, that. oh. I didn't even notice that. Damn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You didn't notice that the sound came back? I mean, no. I was just, like, paralyzed by that scene. It's a, it's a paralyzing scene, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to the kind of what I was talking about a second ago with some of the actors who steal the show most notably is the widow of uh, Lord Ichimonji's eldest son who as it turns out is this cackling kind of manipulator of everything and is awesome every time she's on screen like there's this there's this part where she looks down and just sees like a bug or a grasshopper crawling there and i didn't know if this was planned or not i expected her to like pick it up and just put it in her mouth and eat it whole (laughs) like that's the kind of character we're talking about here this there's an operatic nature to this movie that is not is not realistic obviously i think that kind of goes without saying but it is telling this story as if it's like literally the only place in the world and it feels huge and it's not like barry linden where it has kind of this irony to it uh although it weirdly comes to kind of a similar nihilistic conclusion uh it's really all highlighting uh just kind of the tragedy of it all and i think it's really effective yeah um something that i thought was kind of interesting is that uh, because anthony earlier you brought up godzilla um is that the first AD of this movie was actually the director of Godzilla. You're kidding. What? <laughs> that yeah. is amazing. Oh, mm-hmm. I did not know that. That's that fantastic. is my favorite thing I've learned today. Ishiro <laughs> <laughs> Honda was the AD on this? Mm-hmm. Yep. I can't believe that. That's fantastic. Clearly, yeah, wow. clearly, I have not done my research, so thank you for that guy. No problem. When was it that we were talking about uh, the kind of the blood that looks like red paint because that does not hold a candle to this yeah yes it's very bright the blood in this movie is insane yeah Yeah, the whole the whole scene in the the like we were just talking about the the castle raid just buckets and buckets of blood all over the place (laughs) it's that scene is that scene was just so intense i love that scene yeah 
It's just, it, I think that's, that's really kind of the highlight of the movie is what we're establishing. Yeah. Um, Especially like, just to me, I said it earlier, the, the, where he's looking for the sword, I assumed like to, to commit seppuku or something. And I think he's, he's, you know, the, the, just the way the camera moves because it's like, it's fire. The, he's almost on fire. That's how close <laughs> he is to the fire. Oh, yeah. that like, shot. Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then there, there's just the way the arrows line up, and the like. There's a lot of fire. Like, how did that actor not pass out from smoke inhalation? Yeah. Like it's it's crazy how how intense, just of a production it looked like. Like it's to me, it it seemed like as impressive as you know any epic ever made. Even though this is kind of the biggest scene in the movie. It it feels it feels like it it the effects of this. I was still thinking about this scene throughout the rest of the movie because it was so specific and so quiet and so like like you know I, I've never heard a I've never seen a scene like this that I that just cut out the sound that way like it it made it seem so much more tragic like it wasn't supposed to be exciting it was supposed to be you know horrifying and it was. And it looks I, I can't get over some of the some of the things they just pulled off for this movie. You never saw Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Kind of perfected it in that one. Quote of the evening, right there. They really, they really figured it out. <laughs> Akira Kurosawa can learn a lot from Hunger Games. <laughs> That's the go. lesson I'm learning. Akira Kurosawa ran, no pun intended, so that the Hunger Games. Wait, no, I got that backwards. No, Kurosawa walked so the Hunger Games could run. Uh Could run in the opposite direction with that CGI. I really, I really, I really screwed that one up. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, there's this, with all of just the haywire stuff going on throughout uh, at least the action scenes and even a lot of the dialogue scenes even throughout this movie there's this uh overarching kind of attitude that i detect of how did it come to this and on one hand it's shameful but also it's kind of like i was saying earlier it is inevitable when we leave such huge ideas such huge decisions to people you know but who by their very nature are conflicted and are inconsistent and who fail more often than not which is a very kurosawa uh theme and uh it all leads to just a pile of rubble in the end you know things just things fall to the ground and that's kind of the way things are so bit of a downer of a movie come to think of it you know yeah, it's very bleak, and I, I appreciated how um, so much of the movie kind of takes, pla- takes place on the, the plains where it's just like the ground is just black and dark and just everything's so bleak. Yeah. And I think it really matches the tone of the film. What's, most interesting, what's most interesting about that is that uh, during the production, and I actually I don't recall how far into the production it was, but it was somewhere along the way. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's wife, I hope I pronounce this right, uh, Yoko Yagushi, uh, died somewhat unexpectedly. And Kurosawa only took one day to mourn and then just went right back to work. And then when this movie came out, it was this huge deal. And actually what happened was that uh, Sidney Lumet, 
of all people, ad, uh, advocated and said, Academy, you got to you know, you got to step outside the U.S. You got to nominate uh, Kurosawa for Best Director, and they did. And hmm. he, he ended up losing, of course. But it's fascinating how who did he lose things to? like that. Uh, who I can't remember the name, but whoever directed uh, Out of Africa. Uh, I'll look that up in a second. Wait, but did Robert Redford direct that? Am I thinking of the right? You're movie? thinking of uh, Ordinary People. That was oh. 1980. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, even still, it was uh, it was a huge hit in the U.S. more so than a lot of really? similar uh, uh, movies of the era and from that time period. And yeah, the 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 thing I find most fascinating about it is that it was released in 1985, and yet it is so not an 80s movie in air no. quotes. Like I was surprised to see that this was released in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it seems like something that could have come out in, like, the 50s, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. barring maybe technological uh, limitations they may have had. And it just goes to show, like, how long someone can really carry a torch for a story in this way and just pour their heart and soul into it and this is not long after uh kurosawa had gained a little bit of a resurgence not just in his career but in his life he attempted to take his own life in the early 70s um and uh, it was going back into the movies that kind of that kind of saved his life and this was one of them and the huge success was just the icing on the cake and it's not it's not well known outside of cinephiles so my question is should it be do you think this is uh an effective way to kind of introduce someone uh to to maybe a world a cinematic world that maybe they're not familiar with well outside of cinephiles i think it definitely helps that it's in color um i think (laughs) yeah the the number one like when i try to convince people to watch an older movie they're like black and white (laughs) as if it's just gonna you know make you go blind or something um (laughs) so i think it you know like show them this and then maybe after this some of the uh black and white stuff um then i i think that alone is a pretty good reason to definitely get this a wider audience you know Mm mm-hmm yeah, there's a lot of it. It's just uh, it's huge storytelling, which is really recognizable to us. So that certainly helps. Uh, just to clarify, uh, Kurosawa lost the lost the Oscar to Sidney Pollack, director of, oh, of Africa. Okay. So how about that? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, strange. I haven't seen Out of Africa, so I can't really comment on it. But it would have been nice to say Academy Award winner Akira Kurosawa, but you know what? He's too good for that award. That's what I say. Was he nominated for anything else ever? No, this was the only one. Wow. His movies were nominated on a lot of occasions, a lot of them for uh, uh, foreign film and stuff, but not uh, Kurosawa specifically, no. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. But as you said, he's above. He's above them. He's above Damn right. He doesn't <laughs> need <laughs> them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, Sam, uh, huh. being uh, Kurosawa's number one fan, uh, where does this one rank for you? That's. Let's not 
put anyone up on a pedestal here, Jason. But <laughs> the biggest I, expert I, on Kurosawa. Yeah. Not even close. The number one close. authority <laughs> on Akira Kurosawa, ladies and gentlemen. Challenge him. Challenge him on Twitter now. <laughs> he wants to defend his title. He he was telling us earlier before the show. He's like, <laughs> all these Twitter scrubs snitches. out there think they know things. Twitter snitches. <laughs> I never called anyone a snitch. <laughs> sure. I'll okay. take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, you asked where this ranks. Uh, oh, there's, there's so many I know. I'm sorry. great it's ones. Like there's, yeah. I, I can't think of a single one that I don't like. And I've seen of the 32, I've seen a good 20 to 25 of them. So certainly the majority, uh, this is, to say that this might not even be in my top 10 is not so much a slight on this movie so much as it is a compliment to Kurosawa's entire body of work. So uh, somewhere around 10, maybe give or take, okay. uh, well, cer- certainly in the top 15, looks like. Like, undoubtedly. And so do you again. think it's it's a good introduction? Uh, I think I would personally start with something a little more traditional uh something that's not quite as uh long because again this is another one where the length might be a little difficult Um, also also the whole color thing rashomon might be a good one i think that's a great one i think uh yojimbo is was my introduction and it was a damn good one so it's very hard to go wrong there uh and also the sequel sanjuro like that'd be a great one two punch sanjuro by the way which has the greatest samurai sword fight in movie history and i'm not going to say what happens because it's a cool reveal but it's it's something else so uh i highly recommend that and uh and uh yeah there are a few of the more contemporary thrillers like high and low would be a great one to start with yeah Uh, yeah there's just it's it's hard to go wrong i wouldn't i would certainly not steer anyone away from watching this or any of them first uh it's not like i there's not one that i would say save for later specifically um so yeah, I'm 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 just I'm just excited to hear that uh, that it served as a functional uh, introduction for for you and Anthony. So that's really nice. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of lot of really cool stuff in this movie. Lots of a uh, lot of just really great cinema to unpack. We could go on for quite a while, but I think it's fair to say that we've gone on for quite some time <laughs> already. So I'd like to ask, uh, is there anything else that anyone specifically wanted to mention about curse? I was run. I don't, I don't think I have anything unless you guys, do. I, I think we covered it. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Again, like all these, we like any one of these could have, uh, necessitated their whole own conversation but I guess such is the nature of extra milestones so I was delighted to get to uh, discuss them in the capacity that we did I was delighted to uh, introduce some of them to uh, to a lot of you and uh, I had fun re-watching them and talking about them and uh, having this, this uh, sweet sweet uh, reunion of sorts at long last and i uh, all i hope is that one day we can do it as god intended in person one day without having to deal with all this uh, technological stuffy stuff wouldn't you say oh yes that sounds delightful yes absolutely (laughs) oh my okay so without any further ado let's do our uh our outros here so i'll start with uh, uh, Jason Reed himself. Jason, 
where can the listeners go if they so desire uh, to see what you're up to on the net? Uh, Letterbox? I don't know. I don't do anything. I don't (laughs) post things. There's a reason I did Jason first. Let's move on to Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Guy underscore Simons Jr. Very nice. Please do that. I highly recommend it. And Anthony, where can they find you? Uh, I'm also just on Letterboxd because I don't trust none of them social medias. Damn right. (laughs) Uh, Just Anthony Battaglia on Letterboxd. And that's, that's about it. Very nice. I'm, I'm on Letterbox as well on uh, on that site at just my name Sam Nolan. Relatively easy to find. I'm also on Twitter at Nolan Sam, and I'm also on TikTok, of course. Yes. At Nolan Sam, of course. I do lots of funny, silly uh, voice impressions and stuff, and it's a fun time. So uh, if you feel like it, if you feel like it, go check me out there. And at long last, I think that's about all we got to quote uh, our old Goodness. podcast from uh, uh, the, the first century BC. I'm Sam Noland. Uh, from Barry Lyndon's libido. I am Andrew. Dear God. <laughs> A lot of space to cover there. <laughs> In Ireland, I'm known as an Irish upstart. I'm Guy Simons Jr. Hmm. <laughs> And from under my bed, because I've been recording this uh, under my bed, uh, I'm Jason. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you, I hope, on the next Extra Milestone.